Blog Talk Radio. Jungle, we have it for original, nigga. Dance, 
during this time period. So right now, let's get started with our party. We're bringing Brother Haki. Brother Haki, we'd like to welcome you to Africa on the Moon. Uh, Brother Africa, uh, you're breaking up a little bit there. Uh, yeah, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Okay. All right. My name, <clears throat> my name is Haki Kamaki Mashoki. Carrying on with the African awareness, and you know, of course, Brother Africa, you know, my thing is all about institution building. But in order to understand the importance of institutions, I think there's a, a bit of information I think is important that we come to grips with. And that is the whole question around inflation. Uh, often we, we think of inflation, we don't understand the seriousness in which uh, inflation um, impacts the, uh, the, the economy and as a consequent impact on people. So clearly uh, I thought it was important that I, I talk a little bit about briefly about this question of inflation because it does have ominous repercussions uh, for the populace, and it's important we understand that. And understanding the role of inflation in terms of potential um, negativity that comes with it, and we can better prepare ourselves in terms of any eventuality as a result of um, runaway prices that exist, you know, in the context of uh, in the context of the world. Now, inf- now I wrote this bit. Now, inflation is simply defined as too much money in circulation. In the context of capitalism, too much money in circulation seems oxymoronic. Given the more money in circulation, the better the prospects of wealth gaining access to the multitude of dollars in circulation. From a pure monetary perspective, assessing inflation in an, in an economy is important because inflation affects price discovery, making it possible to balance the interplay between prices and an ability of consumers to consume at established prices. Serving as a barometer of sorts, inflation makes possible the fine-tuning between supply and demand with an emphasis on the consumer price index that monitors consumers' ability to spend which is key to ensuring money flows through the system, thus ensuring velocity of money. If this balance between supply and demand can be maintained, the possibility of an economic equilibrium could be achieved, whereby efficiency could be established, and the benefits of the economy could be distributed in a way that's advantageous to the overall society. Now, during the 80s, 1980s, this formula began to change, and the consumer's role as a focal point ended. Inflation fighting became a mere buzzword, and accumulation of wealth for elites came into vogue. This feat came into existence by injecting huge sums of money through the system, eliminating the need for consumer dollars. In the U.S., this strategy called qualitative easing would employ the Federal Reserve Bank purchasing trillions of dollars in assets from the Department of Treasury with the express purpose of increasing the money in circulation. Recently, the Federal Reserve purchased 120 billion in government-backed bonds, 80 billion of Department of Treasury debt, and 40 billion in mortgage-backed securities, all purchased monthly. These expenditures are earmarked specifically for corporations, investment firms, and capitalists. While the mandated intent was to ensure money flowing through the system to mitigate inflation by facilitating both supply and demand, that mandate did not stipulate the money be used for productive purposes or the good of society. Consequently, these monies were used for the express benefits of institutions or wealthy individuals. In the case of corporations, stock buybacks are utilized to inflate the value of stocks, making it possible to provide healthy payouts to corporate managers and stakeholders in the form of dividends, while simultaneously all the while concealing corporate debt that contributes to inflation. 
Add interest to the Ponzi scheme, the level of wealth enjoyed by the wealthy, courtesy of economic manipulation, promotes economic disparities by which economic recovery is difficult, if not impossible, to achieve. Needless to say, the higher cost of living not only imperils the economy, but working people as well. A recent Gallup poll indicated people making less than 100000 a year reported hardship. If inflation is negatively affecting those making between eighty dollars to $95,000 yearly, imagine the impact on a working poor whose median income falls below $68,000 a year. Keep in mind, this median income does not reflect the base salary of $13,000 a year among the poorest. Certainly, in assessing the level of despair in society from ever-increasing inflation, we won't be hard-pressed to rationalize economic hardship with increasing the amount of money printed by the U.S. government. The money supply in the U.S. rose from a few years ago from $15 trillion to $21 trillion by 2021. In 2020 alone, $5.7 trillion was printed, but the prospect of economic relief remains unattainable for working and poor people in the society. Now, despite advocates claim capitalism is the most efficient economic system in existence, the claim of efficiency is truly overrated, if not fraudulent. Efficiency evades capitalism for two important reasons. One, prices established by capitalism are not established in a marketplace which takes into consideration the overall population's ability to pay. But rather, prices are established by corporate managers whose focus or the bottom line takes precedence over the good of the society. Secondly, Creating wealth or printing the money to benefit wealth only ensures the buying of assets like land, housing, financial firms, ensuring prices continually rise. In this context, inflation is a natural byproduct that imperils society. This level of precariousness ultimately gives rise to antisocial behavior among economic elites and the poor, culminating in perpetual confrontation where each side would like nothing better than to vanquish the other. And speaking of confrontation, these conflicts manifest themselves many ways. Wealth elites often use stealth to execute war against the poor. Utilizing hybrid strategies, most financial institutions scapegoat the poor for economic downturns. Typically, they would say things like, people are abandoning, abandoning their jobs because of stimulus checks, or workers or unions advocating for high salaries are destroying the economy. In other words, the poor encourage inflation by not conforming to the established economic rules. Even though the IMF debunked this absurd mean by downgrading U.S. economic growth to, by one percentage point, this information persists. The reality is inflation is in the U.S. is self-inflicted. Now, history is instructive in this regard. The history of U.S. pre-verification is long and sorted. First, in 1980, U.S. nationals decided <coughs> decided opportunities to better exploit the poor could be achieved in China, citing lower production costs, both manufacturing, research, and development. Jobs were re relocated to China. Relocation of manufacturing plants were successful. In fact, 97.8% of all manufacturing products since 2011 have been from China. U.S. capitalists were able to import cheap goods into the U.S., securing great profits for themselves by selling at exorbitant prices. The downsize was between 2001 and 2011, the U.S. lost 2.7 million manufacturing jobs or $37 billion in revenues. By 2018, over 3.7 million jobs eliminated and $150 billion in lost 
wages according to the World Trade Organization. By 2021, China's exports to the U.S. reached $529 billion, and the impact on the national economy is, is palpable. Now, budgetary declines too big to ignore manifested themselves in the U.S., and the debt-to-GDP ratio rose from 108.46 in 2019 to 133.92% in 2020 and still rising. Just statistical measurement is key to understanding a nation's creditworthiness. To give you an example, recently the EU adopted an initiative spearheaded by the countries of Germany, France, and the UK. They spearheaded an a initiative that launched an a initiative called the Instrument for Supporting Trade Exchange. And this was done in 2018. And this whole initiative was to facilitate trade without using dollars. While at the same time, the European Union Central Bank dumped $565 million reserve of, of dollar reserves in exchange for Chinese yuan. Clearly, investments in dollars are no longer profitable, and inflation reflects that reality. Now, in relation to the debt to GDP to debt ratio, now, any score over 77 is considered a risky investment. The U.S. is well above that threshold when analyzing this whole debt to GDP ratio. Consequently, inflation in the U.S. currently resides over 6.8%, larger than the 5% inflation rate projected five months earlier. This inflation level is reason for concern given inflation was this high, only existed three decades ago, and the Federal Reserve Chairman at that point, Alan Greenspan, vowed that this, that this level of inflation will never occur again. Uh, he vowed that if this kind of inflation will happen again, the, the, the Federal Reserve would simply increase interest rates to uh, prevent the inflation from rising. Well, Greenspan, of course, was wrong. And the reality is high levels of inflation are, 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 are a fact of life. And, and one thing is very, very clear. If you, as long as the U.S. continues to arbitrarily print up money, then this kind of inflation that we're talking about is guaranteed to, to, to occur. Now, the current federal chairman, uh, Director Jay Powell, he states that the deflation, inflation is, is transitory. That is, it's only temporary. Now, ironically, this is the same thing Greenspan said three decades ago. So clearly this question is of inflation is something that we have to be concerned about. We have to understand the implications. And, in fact, when we talk about the deconstruction of capitalism or the undermining of the economic order, we've got to understand the role that capitalism pay, plays. While the rich may benefit in terms of these kind of policies that are put into place you know, by the Federal Reserve, the bottom line is that it's the poor people who have to pay the price for these kind of policies. So we've got to understand the implications in terms of, you know, uh, being uh, scapegoated in terms of when these situations occurred and understanding that people in positions of power are always going to point to others as the source of the problem. And we as a community, particularly the African community, have to be very concerned about any potentialities in terms of violence being directed against African people. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll go to Brother Anthony. And we would like to welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, uh, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objectivist Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa, under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. From Brother Anthony, we will now go to Brother Moses 
Welcome, Brother Moses, to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that my faith tongue is his messenger for government. Father, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. Women hold up half the sky. That's why I support the Equal Rights Amendment, E-R-A-S. And, you know, at the, risk of, at the risk of sounding ridiculous, let me say that a true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love for the people. And I, I would hope that uh, all misunderstandings and confusion will be cleared up as history will resolve me of any any uh, discrepancies I may have made in the past in terms of the woman question. And uh, I just thank thank uh, you for allowing me to be on the show, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Moses. And from Brother Moses, we go to Sister Eleanor. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Good evening, uh, Brother Africa and panelists, and to our listening audience. And happy holidays and happy Kwanzaa to everyone, today being the first day of Kwanzaa. I am hoping that uh, Moderna and Pfizer will make available their proprietary information to any pharmaceutical company on planet Earth that's able to produce the vaccine to bring this pandemic under control, uh, Brother Africa. And uh, this has been uh, an exciting week. We see that the economy is opening up. Uh, Brother Haki spoke about the Consumer Price Index, the CPI. And in the District of Columbia, Washington, the District of Columbia, the capital of the United States, as of December 31st, 2021, uh, landlords will be able to file a 30-day notice to increase rents. And uh, my concern is that uh, is inflation because, of course, the Consumer Price Index determines the rent increase. So in the district, you're able to increase the rent by the Consumer Price Index um, plus 1%, not to exceed uh, 10%. So this can be a real gouge in terms of people's housing and, and their homes. And the other concern this evening, Brother Africa, is uh, the increase in infections uh, in the United States and the world. So thank you so much for allowing me to participate. And once again, good evening to the fellow panelists, to yourself, and to our listening audience. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. This is Africa on the Move. We're going to take a revolutionary culture break. And when we return, we will start our first segment, What's Going On in Your World and the Community. And you can join us by dialing 323 Six seven nine zero eight four one. We'll be right back.
Clarendon And if you come from Portland And if you come from Westmoreland You're an African So don't you where you come from As long as you're a black man You're an African No mind your nationality Have got the identity of an African Cause if you come from Trinidad And if you come from Nassau And if you come from Kimba You're an African So don't you where you come from you're a black man, you're an African No mind your complexion There is no rejection You're an African Cause if your flexion high, high, high If your flexion low And if your flexion in
back to Africa on the Moon. I'm your host, Brother Africa. We're going to be in the seat and we're going to take the heat. As we define it, we're going to stand behind it. We will now move into our first segment for today's program, which is what's going on in your world and the community. First and foremost, we're going to actually remind you also, this is the first day of Kwanzaa, the Moses celebrating unity. So make sure you go out in your community and participate and make your contribution to help make your community and our communities a better community. So right now, you can join us by calling in at 323-679-0841. Before you join us, there's a couple couple announcements we would like to make. One, we like, just would like to remind you on this historical date, on December 26th, in, eight, in eight, 1908, that was Jack Johnson became the first heavyweight champion in Boxing Hill. Also in Mozambique, proclaimed this day, as Family Day. That was in 1982. Just a us of some of the little history that we have contributed and made for humanity. Right now, we're going to move forward to our segment, What's Going On in Your World and the Community. And we're going to do this by bringing in Brother Haki and asking Brother Haki, drop some ballistics to our listening audience. What's going on in your world and the community? Well, Brother Africa, not to not to beat a dead horse, I got to deal with this issue of victimhood because it's one of the things that uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm actually I'm somewhat shocked uh, when this when this when this question comes up in terms of uh, uh, people position that this propensity for you know the progressive community you know to push victimhood. Uh, um, you know, uh, as 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 a reality, I, I find it somewhat problematic. But in any event, I thought I'd like to spin around this question, this question in terms of victimhood, because you know I think we really have to think about who is the re- who who really perpetuates uh, victimhood. But in any event, Brother Africa, check this out. Now, in 2009, David Mendoza Perete, a drug dealer of U.S. Spain citizenship, was extradited to the U.S. on the condition stipulated in legal documents he served his time in a Spanish prison. Diplomatic assurances between U.S. and Spain were formalized with the understanding Mendoza would be extradited to the U.S., tried, and returned to Spain to carry out his sentence. Six years later, Mendoza still presides in a U.S. prison where twice the U.S. denied his transfer application to be returned to Spain. Needless to say, Spain officials were appalled and attempted redress only to be told in court documents by James Lewis, the lead U.S. prosecutor, quote, the U.S. has never broken a diplomatic assurances, end quote, which is a, was a breaking lie, brazen lie. Now, given this narrative, should Spain be considered victims, yes or no? Uh, the extent to which Spain was deceived does denote victimhood, but taking into consideration Spain's response by initiating legal action against the U.S. suggests Spain's resistance, and, and certainly the resistance that it showed, connotes a willingness to confront a perceived wrong. Victims don't fight back. Now, this brings me to the point of the discussion. In the U.S., much discussion takes place with respect to allegations of victimhood. Such allegations are often leveled by conservative pundits to conceal the structural inequality and the inner workings of institutions that shapes perceptions, inculcates feelings of powerlessness, or psychologically cripples by creating or reinforcing conditions that undermine human development. Their motivations are transparent, and the psychological benefits they accrue by limiting competition for wealth 
status, while subjugation, subjugations of others are rationales, unconscious otherwise, that serve as the catalyst to legitimize such a position. In the case of new in the case of neo conservative blacks, what possibly could what possible could what, what possibly could their motivations be for attempts at branding progressives as agents promoting victimhood? These allegations are particularly disconcerting in the light of the legacy of resistance against institutionalized racism and inequality, even when their actions often culminated in death or imprisonment. People like Ignacio Sancho, Octobar Coeno, and Mary Price, a British abolitionist, confronted with brutal conditions, took a stand to denounce this peculiar institution of slavery, not because it was easy, but because it was necessary. This dissemination of information without without thought, in light, excuse me, this dissemination of information without without doubt enlightened some practitioners of enslavement, but more importantly, instilled a sense of hope, a level of empowerment among many of the enslaved who, who often thought such a such a move was impossible. Should their heroic acts be characterized as promoting victimhood or instrumental in delegitimizing the psychological grip that renders self-actualization? an impossibility in the minds of so many of the enslaved. Now, the psychological aspect of oppression is extremely intricate. The unconscious mind's embrace of information, both private and negative, affects us on a level we can neither control nor understand. Countering negative information on an unconscious level can only be countered with information presented to the conscious mind that calls into question information stored in the unconscious mind. When Harry Tubman made made the statement, quote, I could have freed a thousand more if only they knew they were slaves, end quote, lays out this paradox. Many of the enslaved were convinced by their unconscious mind no alternative exists for African people. That reconciling themselves to enslavement was the best possible outcome. Tubman's action was perceived as misplaced without logic because the conditioning process that commenced centuries ago resonated in the minds of many. Conversely, we can save Brother Africa. Millions, millions could be saved if only they understood, understand they are an oppressed group despite claims of being free. Now, convincing the unconscious mind of the, of, of the, of the enslavement, excuse me, excuse me, convincing the unconscious mind of, the, of, of their enslavement, of, of the enslaved, their existence does not depend solely on the whims of the plantation owners, was difficult. In a strategy that omitted the involvement of the plantation owner, were rejected and rendered unworkable. Consequently, Harriet Tubman was viewed as, as suspicious, a woman deficient in logic whose only attribute was she was foolish enough to believe a better world could be obtained by African people. Should I conclude Harriet Tubman's actions were consistent with promoting victimhood or was her actions empowering? In the U.S. as well as the world, socioeconomic indicators assessing well-being of African people are at the bottom. Either there is something inherently defective about African people or a system in place to shape outcomes. We can safely rule out genetics because the African genome is the origin of humans, meaning no one is superior to another. In other words, race does not exist among humanity. That leaves us with only systems. Often we talk about imperialism. We talk about the function of financial systems, both multilateral and trilateral. These institutions exert direct control over human affairs, economically, politically, and socially. Despite the immense power they wield, many are unaware of their significance in formatting and sustaining inequality. In fact, the effectiveness in facilitating inequality, racism, and environmental destruction hinges on the prevalence of ignorance among the masses. When groups or individuals come, about, come along directing attention to these systematic inequalities, 
perpetrated by the global institution often be labeled as promoters of victimhood. If the dictionary qualifies as the arbiter of defining victimhood, since when does resistance entail victimhood? This definition is particularly confounding when neoconservative blacks use this mean in an attempt to dismiss the harm and destruction visited upon African people globally. In all probability, the motive is usually the attainment of, of money received from conservative groups and or individuals who, who value discord that endorses the system while berating African people. Ironically, as capitalism deconstructs, the list of state adversaries expands, and it does not exclude black neoconservatives. Information that is pertinent to the African masses' existence in America is drowned out by endless streams of propaganda specifically designed to confuse. It is unfortunate black neoconservatives are convinced history has no relevance despite a litany of human tragedies that continue to unfold in the Western world. If participation in your own oppression is the text te textbook definition of victimhood, then clearly those who advocate ignorance among the African masses are truly promoting victimhood. And Brother Africa, I just want to get it off my chest, and I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll move to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Okay. Uh, let's see a few things. Um, let's see an uh, another uh, freedom fighter out of uh, Azania made his transition uh, today, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. He made his transition today. He was uh, 90 years old. And uh, this marks, uh, this makes the, the second African out of Azania uh, who made their transition this month. Uh, Malefe Ike Mafole uh, made his transition about a week or so ago. And uh, his funeral was held uh, yesterday in Azania, South Africa, uh, near Pretoria. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a sad day for that sector of the African community as well as for Africans uh, worldwide. Also, um, uh, let's see, uh, Africans that are trying to immigrate uh, to the U.S. are still, uh, you know, uh, getting uh, persecuted uh, for, their de uh, for their desire to um, uh, leave the countries where they're living, uh, like Haiti, uh, to come to the U.S. Uh, that's still going on uh, uh, to this day, even though the media attention on it has uh, died down considerably. Uh, those are some things that are happening in my world. Thank you, Brother Anthony. For Brother Anthony, we're going to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, What's going on in your world in the community? Well, in honor of Bishop Tutu's pastor, I, I, I would like to revisit the freedom letter from one million Americans to Bishop Desmond Tutu 
that was sponsored by the Free South Africa Movement, uh, Randall Robinson and the, and, uh, the Free South Africa Movement. Um, this was back in 1985, and um, Bishop Tutu had a special message from South Africa. He said, I pray that the freedom-loving people of the United States will not let the government of South Africa think that Reverend Falwell speaks for all America. It is time for good people to be heard loud, clear, and now. Desmond Tutu, Johannesburg. <clears throat> and the, the freedom letter says, uh, from the people of the United States of America, says, Dear, dear Bishop Tutu, Jerry Falwell does not speak for me or for America. The American people know that apartheid is a crime against the human soul. It is a moral outrage. We condemn it. By signing this freedom level, we say no to Mr. Falwell, no to apartheid, and no to the government of South Africa. I am proud to stand with you, Pope John Paul, Coretta Scott King, and the one million other Americans to speak with a loud, single, and solid voice against the oppression of the black people in South Africa. And um, this... This 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 um, um, apartheid and racism and uh, basically it's fascism and and uh, and uh, um, I I think um, we have to continue that fight on all fronts um, uh, politically, economically, and and theoretically. Um, meanwhile. Uh, it's been an a interesting week. Uh, um, the the Cuban people uh, are still still trying to get the blockade lifted. Uh, um, I belong to uh, the DC Metro Coalition in solidarity with the Cuban Cuban Revolution, and we'll be sponsoring a, a, a forum. Uh, um, um, against the blockade and, and uh, for the freedom-loving people of, of Cuba to be uh, allowed to to um, pursue their economic interests without the inter-U.S. intervention and embargo. And so, but anyway, on the 7th of January, which is, I think, is a Friday, uh, 7 p.m. at St. Stephen's Church in Washington, D.C., uh, St. Stephen's Episcopal Church up on um, in Washington D.C., uh, um, there will be a forum, and uh, it will be either the ambassador from Cuba or one of his assistants, uh, um, and they will be speaking on on the situation in Cuba. And so that's that's what's going on in my world. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we're going to Sister Eleanor. What's going on in your world and the community, Sister Eleanor? Once again, greetings, um, everyone. Yes, as uh, Brother Moses mentioned, that on Friday, January 7th, uh, 2021, from 7 to 9 p.m. at the Church of St. Stephen's, the Incarnate, uh, it's located on the corner of 14th and Newton Street, Northwest, in Washington, D.C., from 7 to 9 um, freedom, freedom-loving uh, people who support democracies around the world will be celebrating the 63rd 
anniversary of the Cuban Revolution. So we certainly hope that our listening audience will come out. Um, This week, uh, Brother Africa, we saw um, an insurgence in the uh, virus. So once again, nursing homes and certain other facilities uh, had some type of restrictions, uh, uh, no, no visitors, that sort of thing. And it's horrible for our elderly. And in addition, uh, we see uh, upswing uh, throughout the country. And as we've discussed or I've discussed before, both Moderna and Pfizer um, were releasing a pill to treat the virus. One is a five-day round, the other is a 30-day round. So I see that pressure from the World Health Organizations and others are being placed on Moderna and Pfizer, uh, asking that they allow uh, this proprietary information uh, not only to be used, but they sign off on its usage. usage. Moderna has suggested, oh, you can go ahead and use it, but it's refusing to release formally the proprietary information. I think it's urgent that this be done. The recent report produced by Moderna uh, completely uh, uh, ignored the fact that uh, U.S. employed doctors worked on the virus. Their names were excluded from the report. And also the reality that the uh, United States of America taxpayers paid for this uh, development of this vaccine. So we, we, uh, I hope that people will understand that when they uh, receive the vaccine, though they may be strong and and can come down with the virus and recuperate, there are others, the grandmothers, grandfathers, the elderly, uh, the sick, people suffering with uh, autoimmune diseases, suffering from cancer may not. So it's an act of love when we Uh, treat this pandemic as what it is, uh, a global pandemic. We saw that this week uh, vaccines had to be destroyed in Nigeria because uh, there was, there's a distribution problem. And uh, that's why it's so important that uh, Moderna releases proprietary information so pharmaceutical companies in South Africa and other countries can produce the vaccine at those sites so that they will have uh, vaccines that can be stored properly and have a long shelf life. Um, uh, One million doses were uh, in Abuja were dumped in a landfill this week simply because uh, it had expired. It sat around for uh, over four weeks, so it was near expiration when it was received. And uh, the Global South is having a difficult time in uh, having its population vaccinated. And this isn't making anyone on planet Earth any safer. And we see that the travel bans that were established for several South 
African countries apparently were not effective in uh, preventing the spread of the Omicron variant. So uh, the virus is still on my mind, and uh, I'd like to formally thank the Cuban people for distributing the vaccine uh, abroad uh, to Venezuelans and other uh, countries where there has been a need. But Cuba itself needs basic things like syringes and things to administer the vaccine. I I think it's a type of uh, genocide when we have U.S. embargoes that prevent, whether in Afghanistan or in Iraq or uh, the long embargo with Cuba uh, that prevent uh, people from receiving medical goods and supplies that are needed for daily life. Uh, this is uh, a real outrage. So that wraps it up for me, Brother Africa. I am just hoping that uh, we see uh, in the upcoming days the release of the proprietary information and made available to pharmaceutical companies throughout the planet, throughout Mother Earth. And we continue to see the impact of global warming as well. So with that in mind, thank you so much, Brother Africa, and uh, thank you so much for having me. We thank you, Sister Eleanor, like always. This is Africa on the Move. What we're going to do right now, listen audience, we're going to take a quick culture break, and when we come back, we're going to make a transition to our second segment of the program as we discuss some really interesting issues and topics that we'll share with you on YouTube. You go to YouTube and look at the original source on these upcoming topics and videos that we will discuss as it relates to your well-being in your community. But we can pause for this cause, and we'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know. I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, to last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it my journey, yeah, yeah. 
Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries and see the blood in the red clay, the clay that holds stones together is African, and each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out from the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be, to know that I've been here, and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah.
South Africa free, all of Africa. We want all Africa free. As Nkrumah once stated during the time period when Ghana was receiving its independence, said we must not settle for these sham independence. This old sham independence gave you the illusion of thinking you're free when in reality we still don't control no aspect of our economies. So we want to free all of Africa. Until Africa is free, 
nor will we be. So don't you forget that. Welcome back to Africa on the Move. I'm your host, Brother Africa. And our panelists, analysts, they are in the seat and they are willing to take the heat. So right now they're going to draw some ballistics um, to you as it relates to the second segment of this program. We'll deal with our theme today, part two, discussing the truth about Africa. Well, one of the things we'd like to say in terms of our primary sources as we discuss these material, you can all find these material on YouTube. YouTube can be a very political um, tool that can be used for our people who properly understood it and really analyze it. And what we have chosen was some videos from YouTube so we can have this discussion on different issues, ideals, and articulations that is taking place in that particular media where we can use it as a learning message. So on that note, we're going to move forward and begin our discussion around that theme, part two, discussing the truth about Africa. And if you'd like to join us, feel, please feel free to call 323-679-0841. Hit one, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Hit one, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. So we'll start with Brother Anthony. On the first video, was a video title basically titled, uh, Moving Out of the Hood is Not a Good Thing. Moving Out of the Hood is Not a Good Thing. I know many of us are being led that once required wealth and money, we run out the hood and, as the sister would say, go directly into the enemy camp. So, Brother Anthony, the sister raised many issues and contradictions of concern. What were some of her concerns as relates to things that those things that are related to issues that African people can expect to be confronted with as a result of living or moving out of the so called hood into the suburbs where they'll be in the minority in terms of um in terms of the ethnic group that they represent. What were some of the issues and concerns that she raised? And we will turn the mic over to you, Brother Anthony. You may speak now. Can you ask Brother Anthony? Yes. Yes. Um, uh, let's see. Um, could you repeat your question, please? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. When you look at the video, the sister was talking about how Africans who may come into some kind of wealth or have, have um, resources that will allow them to lead the hood and go out in rural areas, what kind of life expectancy they can, or they can expect to encounter as a result of it and may not be the best thing to lead the hood going out in suburbs. What were some issues and concerns and contradictions that she dealt with that she said basically all Africans who make the decision um, may have to deal with? Yeah, well, basically, especially Africans with families, and uh, and uh, you know, a lot of Africans aren't aware of what they might be subjecting their children to when they elect to uh, pro- uh, move to a predominantly European uh, uh, community, and. Uh, they uh, they're likely they're likely to encounter more racism, um, persecution because of uh, uh, their cultural practices, 
which they might have acquired uh, from living among Africans. And uh, and I think uh, I think a key thing is that a lot of Africans don't understand that we have our own culture, and it's different from other ethnic groups. And uh, there is a lot of cultural intolerance in this society. And uh, one of the implications of that is that uh is that uh someone who's uh who, who has their own cultural values intact might not be tolerated in a predominantly european setting and also it can make uh, for a difficult socialization process and also um in terms of uh, political empowerment, I thought she made a, an important point that voting isn't to be uh, isn't to be all end all as far as getting political power is concerned, and uh, and I and I thought she, uh, you know that was another important point that she made. Uh, Voting is an important step, but in the society we're living in presently, it is not sufficient. And uh, we have to organize in order, uh, you know, to gain real political power in this society. And I thought, uh, and I thought she made a good point of that. And uh, also, uh, let's see, the socialization process uh, that you might be subjecting your children to, uh, you know, can be traumatic and, uh, and uh, you know, and, uh, it do- and it does cause a-, a lot of difficulties in terms of adapting. And uh, not having, uh, you know, uh, Afri- African uh, people to hang out with, you know, uh, you know, and uh, that can be another uh, 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 another major problem for Africans that pr- that move to predominantly European communities. And uh, she recommends making our community, our own communities, better with the resources that we do have. Thank you, Brother Evans. Brother Haki, can you take on that particular video, in particular around this question of um, the issue of moving out of your, moving out of the hood may not be a good thing. What did you take from the video, Brother Haki? Brother Africa, I, uh, I didn't get that video. I, I okay. didn't respond to the question. Okay. I didn't get that video. Well, my, my response to the question was good next time. Huh? Yeah, go, go ahead. Respond to the question, and we move yeah. to the next panelist. But go ahead and respond to the question. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. My my response in terms of move, you know moving out of out of out of neighborhood, you know, to move to you know exclusively or predominantly uh, uh, a white neighborhood. My position is that I think the the, the fundamental fallacy is is is, uh, uh, is is um is all wrong. 
I think people move, you know, to these to these dominant white neighborhoods out of expectation that somehow that just um, just being around, you know, white people in terms of the way white people are doing things, that there's some tangible benefits to that. Whereas in the marketplace, there may be some tangible benefits in terms of emulating that, those kind of behaviors. But in terms of one's self, self-esteem, uh, one's worth, self-worth, uh, one of the things is that when you, when you, when you, when you start um, ingratiating yourself, you know, to others' you know, way of life, of others' cultures, then the psychological toll or the damage it does to one's self-esteem is tremendous. And that's a fundamental problem that I think, I think when, when, when you do that. Uh, so one of the things I think to the extent that we internalize individualism and that we think that because we think money defines who we are as human beings, we see it as a step up. And that is ironic because, you know, you shouldn't see it as a step up simply because you're going to a predominantly white neighborhood. It shouldn't be a step up. Uh, you know, if you want to, if, if your position is that you simply want to immerse yourself in something, a culture that's different in your own, that's one thing. But to see it as, as, as a, is a fundamental step upwards speaks to the kind of I think self hatred uh, that that I think is unfortunate, and I think for a lot of us I think we tend to believe that in fact that we're actually moving up, not understanding the inherent implication when you start saying that you're moving up, you're saying that they got something that you don't have, and of course they have nothing that we don't have, uh, you know what I'm saying. So one of the things that I, I you know I'm a great admirer of that often you know when you have the situation where African American communities. Uh, you have white flight, and I was often told by uh, my brother. He said that's a great thing, because we don't want to be around. We, we're not interested in being, you know, you know, white neighborhood. We just love the community. It's a nice community, so they they can leave good, with more opportunity for other African people to move in in a nice community. So I think in, his, in that regard, I think what he's saying is that you know he understands the just in terms of the, the beauty, you know, of, of location in terms of the access to the amenities and all those things that make a community community, those things tend to be present in white neighborhoods. And so he's saying that we, we, as, we as, a, as a person, we want to have access to those same amenities. And that's understandable, and that's fine. But I think the psychological damage can't be dismissed. I think we have to begin to understand that those same, those same conditions that exist in, 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 in those white neighborhoods, we can facilitate, we can create in, in African neighborhoods. It simply takes an, an understanding in terms of the needs and collective organization in terms of bringing it into reality. So I think this notion that we only can achieve that by moving out, I think, is a misnomer. I think it's something that we have to fundamentally reject and understand that, you know, that, uh, you know, um, it's, it speaks to a certain kind of polishedness, uh, you know, in the minds of a lot of our people. I think it's something that we fundamentally have to overcome. Okay. Thank you, Brother Haki. Sister Eleanor. Your perspective on if you've seen the video or if you can address the question moving out your moving out the hood um is not a good thing. What would be your response? Just Eleanor. Uh definitely uh gentrification, the whole phenomenon of gentrification in this country is to uh uh move urban blacks, urban African Americans out of the their communities. So it's urgent that we stay in our communities. Traditionally, we left our communities because we could not find the loans and the resources to uh, uh, maintain our properties or to develop our properties 
and uh, that had been a problem. I see that there have been uh, lawsuits filed against uh, a leading uh, uh, mortgage company because now with the computers, you see Africans who are African-Americans who, and I say African-Americans, Brother Africa, because I want people to understand that the diaspora is, is 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 here. There were formerly enslaved people. There's a new diaspora here. But for African Americans that are living in Chicago, living in South Central LA, that uh, DC uh, during the Renaissance of the 1950s and 60s, you would hear Martha Reeves and the Vandellas shouting down Afrocentric cities such as Baltimore and D.C., Detroit, the Motor City. Well, that has changed because there has been mass dislocation. So I think there is a real struggle right now that the community should engage in to maintain neighborhood stabilization and stability by remaining in their communities. Um, Oftentimes, suburbs don't have things that are very essential to uh, a quality of life, such as um, museums, libraries, cultural centers, senior centers, recreation centers, and quite frequently the infrastructure isn't really set up uh, in, uh, for, for that kind of thing. Unless you're driving your own motor vehicle and increasing your carbon footprint, you can't get around many of these neighborhoods. And the issue is what neighborhoods are we talking about? What strata of people are we talking about? Are we talking about uh, billionaires moving to other neighborhoods, or are we talking about middle-class families with six-figure incomes leaving their neighborhood? And I think right now the most important thing is to stay in your neighborhood, to maintain uh, neighborhood stabilization. It's important that your neighbors that you've had 50 years on your way up through medical school remain your neighbors. They become the people who look out for your children, who um, take care of your collecting your mail when you're on vacation. So neighborhood stabilization is something that should be fostered. And uh, I saw, for example, Brother Africa in 1995, there was a referendum in Cambridge that was going to eliminate rent control there. And there were, uh, no one realized how many renters there were at that time because they were Portuguese Americans and and different folks in a different in addition to African Americans and black people and they thought that many of the residents were naturally students attending Harvard. Well, what happened was uh, published in the uh, quasi uh, journal um, uh, called a magazine called The Economist. In one year, you couldn't find whole blocks of people because they had been dislocated. You look at Baltimore right now, there are blocks and blocks of city streets where there is an active uh, political move to 
bulldoze and eliminate certain properties because no one wants you to have a unified community. No one wants to have the old grocery store or co-op building standing for public use. So right now I think it's essential that um, we try to maintain neighborhood stabilization by staying in our communities, by improving our schools, and as uh, a brother Anthony had mentioned, you know, voting isn't everything, but it is so important, and it's very important to be able to have voting blocks. Right now, they're redistricting all over the country, and you can see in Houston and other areas how Texas is trying to disenfranchise uh, African American, African neighborhoods as as we say in this form. And this is for a reason, is to destabilize and dislocate and devalue. And right now we see that uh, the governor of Maryland is taking action. He's looking at why blacks can live in a neighborhood with very similar housing that may be in a uh, white neighborhood in northern Virginia eight miles or 10 miles away, and the property value be less. The exact same property. So we're talking about, uh, we're not talking about low-income housing. We're talking about middle-class housing, but it's devalued simply because it's a, a predominantly black community. So I, I can't tell you how neighborhood stabilization is so important for your children, for the elderly, uh, for everyone, and that you certainly need to uh, remain where you're standing and where you have stood for generations. It's a part of maintaining your roots. And uh, I don't see moving as, unless you're moving from the project, I don't see, and even moving from the projects right now, quite frankly, there's been a big federal government move to take over public housing. We saw it bulldozed in Chicago, and they built luxury single-family homes. Well, what happened was people whom had known each other for generations were dispersed. We see what's the results of Katrina so many years ago. And Brother Hakeem mentioned a young girl whose family subsequently was in Iowa because of dislocation. And there's still so many folks from Katrina in Iowa, in Wyoming, in Texas, living in trailers that have never returned home to the Ninth Ward. important that we maintain our communities throughout this country. We know from knowing our history how black townships during Jim Crow were burned and destroyed throughout this country. We know right up through the 70s in this country how black townships in the state of Maryland and other states were not able to have uh, essential services bought into the community. But entrepreneurs stepped in and they became the solid waste management teams. And so it fostered economic growth in the long run. So I see staying in your neighborhood as being essential to cultural uh, 
uh, intellectual and uh, financial growth and also important for your health. And Thank I you, think Sister that Lula. when we look at one, one other thing, brother, when we look at uh, development in our communities, we should make sure that uh, the absence of uh, grocery stores, if we're living in a food desert, we need to access those federal funds to make sure that there are co-ops and grocery stores and that we see that kind of development and that African people are the, the people engaged in that type of development. So uh, Thank you, Susan. Uh, stay put. Thank you. All right, Brother Moses. We should take a moving out of the hood. It may not be a good thing. Brother Moses. Well, the hood, you know, there's this there's, uh, power and unity in, in, uh, in numbers and uh, and strength when people get on one accord and and fight for the for the same rights that each each uh, needs uh, needs, uh, and there's power in that. And uh, so when we when when we move out of the community, uh, uh, it definitely uh, has an effect on on our psychological makeup. Uh, if there's discrimination. Uh, uh, because white flight, etc. Uh, we have to we have to struggle to uh, to to be part of a community that is that is you know involved in the school system, involved involved in in everyday life. Uh, you know, it's it's been. Let me say. The history and the heritage ages of apartheid in the USA. It has been correctly stated that black skin will never be free until white skin is also free. And so, the history of apartheid in the USA shows that it is a, a history of a economic opportunism and a story of denial and hatred. And that, you know, we we have to uh, become bigger than than uh, a small-minded, prejudiced, bigoted person. And, uh, you know, we have, we have to unite with our brothers and sisters in, uh, in organization and, and, uh, and pursue our interests. And, you know, and that's, that's, you know, the splitting up the community dilutes that to some extent, but it's, it's not insurmountable. Uh, Thank you, brother. Yeah, thank you, brother Moses. Let's just hold off right there. We got a caller that's been waiting patiently. We're gonna hear this caller and got a caller position on moving out of the hood it may not be a good thing. We're gonna hear with our caller. Caller, your last four numbers are seven seven one two. Caller seven seven one two. The mic is yours. How you doing, sir? How you doing, caller? I lived in this city called Chicago. Spent a lot of time okay. in bad neighborhoods. And the only thing that was able, that was actually able for me to 
hop out of that bad mindset, you know, how easy is it to join a gang? The only way that I was able to opt out of all that nonsense is a trade. (laughs) So I learned to trade. I'm sorry, does that make sense to you, sir? Yeah, it makes sense to me. It makes sense to you, Carl. So your position is you would prefer you you leave the city because the gang influence is, is too great, too great. To stay there for you and your family. That's what I think I heard what you're saying. Is that correct? No, no. The the gang stuff, um, the the Lion Kings and the BDS and all all these people are are fighting over on the west side and the south side. Yeah. I I, I mean I've never I've never been involved in any of that stuff. I tried my damnedest to not be involved, but I learned a trade mm-hmm. and. Yeah, okay. no, I, I would just like to introduce that to the kids because uh, you don't have to join a gang. All you have to do is learn how to work with wood or metal or something, and you'll probably be all right. So I don't know what the hell right. people are doing these days, but, man, that's, that, that, that stuff saved my life. Oh, that's, that, that's, that's beautiful, brother. You know, if you, you know can develop a, a trade or something that is um, – has a has a has a value where you can um, um, participate in this economy. There's there's no need for you to move out. That's right here. What you're saying, Carla. All right, Carla. We'll yes, be still alive for a second. I'll I'll just I'll let let my panelists if they want to respond to something that I've heard, uh, brother Anthony. I come back to you on this this matter. The brother said one of the important things is if if the I assume that, that the youth. The inner city kids usually they have some kind of uh, specialized skill that can be used as a tool for some kind of economic economic per economic. Teach those kids purchase. a trade. Yeah, teach those kids a trade. Hmm. Yeah, those kids uh, will be making I, I sixty, think that seventy, would, eighty, think that ninety thousand dollars a year. I'm sorry, sir. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, uh, I didn't mean to cut you off, brother. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I agree that, uh, that learning a trade can help uh, because you would pre- be providing a service that the community needs. And uh, so learning a trade is definitely helpful. And I think, uh, you know, and I think actually providing – and then also, and also, if you stay in your neighborhood, uh, people will see that, uh, especially the youth will see that there are other options available for them, other than uh, uh, I you know, appreciate that, you speaking slowly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and also, um, you know. Uh, uh, you know that uh, it would uh, show them and give them an example of uh, of an option that's available, uh, you know, to uh, you know to the gangster lifestyle. Yes, sir. How you doing? I'm Josh Johnson. I do that all over Chicago all the time. West Side, mm. South Side, East Side. Okay. Okay. And... Carl, we, we... 
We thank you for your input, Carlo. We may come back to you later, but let's go. Let's continue the discussion. Bring other folks in this fold. Any response you'd like to make, Brother Hackey, on the brother position of there's no need to leave out if the youth has trades and stuff. Uh, you know, in theory, I like the idea in terms of a trade, but the problem is one of economics, and I think one of the big problems is that when you talk about investments in terms of trade, there's not a big uh, push in terms of, you know, creating training programs for the children. One of the real ironies is that, you know, when you talk about, you know, enterprise zones, you know, the whole idea is, is to, to create those, those, uh, uh, those, those, uh, those, uh, those opportunities in the community that makes the community better. But during the, even when you talk about enterprise zones, there's no discussion in terms of training for the children. So this will or the desire to see the children do better is not necessarily a, a view that's shared by a lot of people, particularly those people who shape the city. So I, you know, I have much, much, much respect for him in terms of his endeavor, in terms of trying to bring trade to the children. But I'm just wondering the question in terms of being able to actually uh, – uh, enjoy, uh, you know, uh, investment in terms of bringing the training to the children, whether or not that's a reality in terms of, you know, Chicago politics. Okay, we'll come back to you real quickly. Call the 7712. Any response you'd like to make based on what you heard from the panelists? Yes, sir. No, I'm more than happy to answer that. It's actually it's actually very simple. This is actually an incentive on business owners and the kids at the same time, because the business owners can write this off as a tax write-off. You know, the time they spend with the kids training them would actually be a tax incentive for them. So yeah, help them, <laughs> help the kids learn a trade. That's all it is. If if these kids aren't gonna be medical doctors or lawyers, you know, you already know. Who, who? I mean, I don't know if you've been in the inner city in Chicago, but I've spent a little bit of time there. I went to school there, and I've met these kids, <laughs> and I was very lucky to be able to bow out when I was 16. And I started my own business, and I'm completely fine, but I'm saying these kids, they have to have an understanding, and there are so many trades, electrical engineering, uh, pipe fitting, you know, there's a hundred different trade school opportunities for these kids, and if you tell those kids you have the opportunity to do one of a hundred different things that are going to make you sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, you know, what the hell? <laughs> but these kids are over here worried about going to college. They're worried about playing a sport. <laughs> I'm not worried about that. I want these kids to thrive and survive, and. Coming from Chicago like I do, I, I just want these kids to have an understanding that they can make a nut doing something that isn't going to break their back, but they're still going to make a nut. I mean, that's the entire thing. I want to make sure these kids have an understanding that they can work a trade, electrical, plumbing, you know, whatever, carpentry. That's up to them. But they never hear that in the schools. So they never hear that. <laughs> so they learn that after the fact, <laughs> and they, you know, they get out of school. They they drop out when they're 15, 16, 17, and then then they learn about it when they're 20, 22, 25 years old. You know, I don't want those kids to have to wait for that. If you talk to the kids and say, hey, 
you guys don't want to go to college, that's fine. <laughs> How about you learn one of these 20 different trades that are right in front of you? You know, and th- and then those kids can make a choice. You know, it's up to them. You don't have to be a doctor or a lawyer. You can be a pipe fitter. You can be an electrician. You can be a plumber, and you'll be all right. But nobody ever told you that, and that, that breaks my freaking heart. Carly, we'd like to thank you for your comments and your participation to today's program. And what I'm going to do right now, before we make close out from this particular topic, um, I just would like to uh, hear the panelists weigh in on this narrative. I think when we when I viewed this particular video, it was, I thank the sister who took the position that uh, moving out of the hood is not a good thing. She raised some issues I think is fundamental to um, their plight as people since we've been here. Uh, one of the things she raised was that um, I think Anthony or someone else alluded to um, some of the consequences that comes with moving out to rural areas, particularly moving out to an area where you'll be you'll be viewed as a as an outsider, as a enemy, as someone who don't want, as someone where group group groupings of people don't want you there. One of the questions she raised is why will you move into an area? where people um, may hate you or see you as the enemy. How do you feel comfortable in a position like that? She talked about the impact of her children. One of the things she didn't think about moving out in terms of the, the, the socialization problems her children was having going to predominantly all-white schools and you don't have a few Africans, you know, in classrooms or in these schools and how they are mistreated by the administration, by the students, what have you. Also, she mentioned in terms also in terms of this argument about African men should uh, seek a relationship with African women. Uh, one of the things she said what happened to her is her son told her that by living in, in rural areas, you know, the only thing that he had access to and saw was, you know, European girls. So he, you know, those were his choices because that's all he had among them, around him. So why do people you know, criticize them for, for, for that kind of choice? Um, she talked about also the whole question when Africans leave the city, one of the things that happens, gentrification or forcing out in the city, is that if you have enough money to move out in the um, rural area, it may be more economic and cheaper is for you to take that money, reinvest it back into the home where you're at, or even buy more homes because what happens is um, Europeans come to the inner cities, and where you were present living at, your homes and your space and your land is is going for real cheap. She was talking about this is one of the things that's taking place and going to take place in Flint, Michigan, and Detroit, whatever you. They are selling homes and properties you can get for less than a hundred bucks, fifty bucks. So you know these were the things you know um, she raising, and she was saying she don't think those sets of problems is is really um, worth encountering on a daily basis versus staying where you're at in inner cities where you have more people like you. So each one of y'all can quickly respond to that dynamic, and then we'll move on to our next subject area. Uh, start with you, Sister Eleanor. You have about two minutes to respond. Sister Eleanor? What was your, what was your question, please, Brother Africa? I just actually respond to the dynamics of some of the contradictions I just talked about with Sister Ray's about some of the issues you would have about going into a community in the rural areas 
when it only be a few of y'all and you are being seen and be treated like you're the enemy. And the problem is that your your children can when it comes to um socialization out in rural areas and going to white schools and how they how the administration and teachers and students treat them. Um, you know, there's many other issues she raised that comes with that. And she felt like it wasn't worth um the headache and the problems of going out there if you can stay in the city. It's best for you to take your money, reinvest in your, you know, in the places where you're at. It also may be wise maybe you can buy some properties like Europeans do when they come into your city. Because most properties now, when they gentrify, they make the properties that we have so cheap that they can get it sometimes for $1. So I'm just asking you to speak to that dynamic in which that's what the video was speaking to. And I think it's interesting that uh, if people get a chance, they should go on YouTube and check it out and think about it. So just your general response to some of those issues or concerns that what you have to encounter when you decide to move out in rural areas, if the good outweigh the bad. Well, quite frankly, Brother Africa, I don't feel that the good outweighs the bad. I don't support people moving out of their communities. I am very interested in neighborhood stabilization. And as uh, Brother Moses mentioned, being involved in the school board, as someone else mentioned, these enterprise zones established by the UN Charter. Well, if we lived in Paris, France, there are initiatives and, and support for Parisians to own their homes and stay in their homes. The District of Columbia is, for example, an enterprise zone, but no Parisians provisions were set aside. I think staying in your community, um, uh, um, fostering and being involved in education, and as the caller said, not everyone's going to be a surgeon or a doctor, but uh, getting a good education, uh, learning a skill, whether it's being an electrician or a cabinet maker, is very important. And increasingly, Brother Africa, we see that farming is going to begin to be an urban phenomenon where we farm in the cities and 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 uh, harvest food that we share with our neighbors and this sort of thing. So really, um, uh, when I say neighborhood stabilization, I'm talking about the 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 buildings and owning property. If someone values your property at a dollar, you better make sure you grab it for that dollar. Because believe me, down the road, that dollar property is going to be a multi-million dollar property. That sounds like urbanization that you're talking about where corporations come in and we see, for example, um, uh, recently, uh, P. Hoffman in the District of Columbia uh, got a 99-year lease on a property at the mouth of the Anacostia and Potomac River. Uh, he's planning on building a hotel in 2,600 units. So it's not how much you can acquire the property for. If you can acquire it at a uh, uh, a low price, buy it, because that's not intrinsically connected to the value of that property. That property is made available to people at low 
crisis so that it can be developed. And uh, I think that we need to uh, work collectively and uh, uh, keep our neighborhoods and communities together, uh, assist our seniors with sweeping their stoops and keeping our lawns. And, and again, it's important when you consider that um, less than 2% of the farmers in the United States are now African-American or indigenous people. So I would urge farmers to stay on their land and their families to keep them. But in terms of the reality that African-American people in the United States are predominantly uh, living in urban centers, I think it's very important that we uh, reinvest in those areas. Look at Harlem in New York. Um, Harlem is gentrified. The people that when there were homestead programs and other programs, many people didn't take advantage of them that were within the community, but outsiders saw the value of those fantastic properties in midtown Manhattan at 110th Street, at 125th Street. And they seized those opportunities and have gentrified those homes and are living in them. And uh, I think it's very important for us as a community to maintain our properties, to uh, uh, make sure that there is some kind of economic and um, political change that uh, stops the racism that causes many uh, people to leave their community because when they made it, they can't get the loans and the resources to, as I said earlier, to develop their property or redevelop it. So they're forced out. I think that's intentional. I think that there is value to living in urban settings. That is the location of most universities, of uh, hospitals, of um, museums, of uh, educational institutes of all kinds. And the caller mentioned the warlords. And I was thinking, you know, sometimes I look at a show called Democracy Now! And one of the journalists on that show was... uh, a Latin warlord, and, and in the 70s, they took over a hospital in the Bronx in New York City, and the purpose for taking over the hospital is they wanted to see an investment in money and resources to improve the quality of care in that hospital. They had what they needed in the community, a hospital, but it was uh uh, run down and, and the city wasn't investing in it. So the community took action and uh, their action caused the redevelopment of that particular hospital in the South Bronx. And uh, again, you were seeing communities bulldoze and torn down, but there was a stop to that when the community decided that we are investing, we're staying in our community. And you saw groups like Run DMC, I think, and these other groups coming out of New York, and they were sending a positive message about 
uh, the politics of being disenfranchised. And we, and as that caller said, we need to fight gun violence. But leaving your neighborhood isn't fighting gun violence. It's 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 just contributing to blight in your community. And you move and others move in. As I said, D.C. was a chocolate city. And to quote a woman named Faith, Mayor Faith, it's now Vanilla Villa. So historically, African-American communities are no longer African-American communities. And the properties were not put, 19th century properties built by ex-slaves and free persons, weren't made historical landmarks. They were bulldozed down because they're in the enterprise zone, the District of Columbia, and large hotels have been built. So um, the sister is right. We need to stay in our neighborhoods. We need to invest in our neighborhoods. Uh, It's nothing wrong with opening a gallery in your neighborhood. Open up the Fulton Center for the Arts. Open up the uh, Shaw Center for the Arts. Um, There is so much that we can do in the settings in which we live. We have the infrastructure to do so. All we have to do is develop the mindset of knowing how important it is and to also combat the financial and cultural racism. And uh, as I said, there's a lawsuit where it's been found now that where I mentioned uh, a couple that was uh, earning about a quarter million dollars. They were approved for a mortgage. They wanted to stay in their community, and they weren't able to. And they believe it's because, and I may be saying the wrong word incorrectly, but the alphorism rhythms um, that were established um, for the computers to determine who could invest in their community pro it didn't allow for persons, black people, to invest. Even though they met all the qualifications, the only thing that was wrong was the skin of their color. They weren't trying to leave their community. They were trying to invest and become landowners, homeowners in their community. So we need to combat this uh, financial racism, this redlining, Uh, I call it reverse redlining. I may be incorrect in that term. And make sure that we are able to invest in our neighborhood and that we are able to participate in the programs that are made available, such as the um, uh, enterprise zone. You know, you're supposed to hire so many blacks and that kind of thing. It's not happening. So unless... We have black uh, unions as we had before or strong union representation. I don't see that happening because it's not happening. But there are programs out there that would allow people to do that. And the sister is so right for our health, safety, and and the future generations. For prosperity, we need to remain in our neighborhoods. And we're relatively safe okay. because we have to deal with the issue of global warming. 
and people aren't going to be able to just hop in their cars, Brother Africa, and drive 15 miles to the supermarket pretty soon. So they better think about having a supermarket in their neighborhood. A library is already in their neighborhood. Rehab that supermarket that's been closed 20 years in your neighborhood. And we can do that. And I think that was can right. You bring your, can you bring your point into your closing less than one I, minute? I'm, fin- I, I, I'm finished, Brother Africa. I'm sorry. Go, please. Yeah, thank you. The bottom uh, line is stay in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. All right, for the second time, panelists, we're going to move to our next subject. I want you all to set back and this audience. There was a video titled Museum Must Return Stolen Artifacts from Africa. So we're going to listen to it. When we come back, I'd like to have your response. Have you heard of the Rosetta Stone? It's one of the most precious artifacts of all time, the first clue to understanding ancient Egyptian scripts. It led to the discovery of at least three writing systems. This stone is as old as modern civilization, the Rosetta Stone. Then we have the Elgin Marbles, a set of Greek sculptures from the 5th century. They were built to decorate Parthenon, the Temple of Athena. They're exquisite, just like the Benin bronzes. This is a collection of metal plaques. They once decorated the Kingdom of Benin. The Benin bronzes are an African treasure. They show how skilled African artists were. Then comes the Tanjaur Shiva, another masterpiece. It's a bronze statue of Lord Shiva, the Hindu god, made almost a thousand years ago during the Chola dynasty, a testimony to the remarkable craftsmanship of the sculptors of ancient India. These are all stunning pieces of art. Do you know what's common between them? They're all present in the British Museum. Or should I say the British warehouse of loot? These artifacts were either stolen or won by force or acquired unfairly. Today they serve as a cruel reminder of colonial times. But the British Museum displays them with pride. It presents them as prized treasures, showing no sense of remorse for the past crimes or gratitude for the people from whom these were taken. And why just Britain? Museums across Europe are filled with such objects with uncomfortable histories linked to colonialism. So here's a question. Do they have the right to keep displaying these objects? Hello and welcome to Gravitas Plus. I'm Palki Sharma Upadhyay. They say in law, a thief is not allowed to keep ill-gotten gains. No matter how long ago they were taken, they must be returned. No matter how much that thief may have improved them, they must be returned. European nations wrongfully took cultural riches. They took them from countries that are now independent states. But most of them refuse to even discuss returning them. They refuse to make reparations for their historical wrongs. According to the Archaeological Institute of America, 85 to 90% of classical artifacts in museums do not have a documented provenance, meaning they don't have a record of ownership or a record of origin through which museums can justify their right to possess these objects. Most of these artifacts are from Africa and Asia. In 2018, the French government commissioned a report. Guess what they found? Nearly 90% of Africa's cultural heritage is held by museums and institutions outside of Africa, nearly 90%. France alone has 90,000 such objects, stolen objects. A majority of them can be found at the Cave Ronley Museum. It's a state-of-the-art museum situated in Paris. It holds a vast collection of art. 
indigenous art from the eight African colonies that France once ruled. Last month, French President Emmanuel Macron decided to make some amends. He made French museums bid adieu to a trove of treasures. At least 26 stolen artifacts taken from the Kingdom of Benin were sent back. The works included palatial doors and royal thrones. They were all returned as a gesture of humility. Today's gesture is the possibility for the youth of Benin, the youth of Africa, to retrieve the works of their history and heritage, to be able to admire them at home. And I hope that this movement will continue and that the universal will be accessible in Cotonou as in Paris. And we will continue this work together. This move has had ramifications across Europe and the U.S. It has opened a debate on looted artifacts, a debate to send them back to their country of origin. A few museums have decided to do this. They've ceded ground. They've begun a process of restitution, but most of the mighty museums are playing ostrich. I'm talking about the big ones, like the British Museum in London, the Louvre in Paris, the Humboldt Forum in Berlin, the Getty Center in Los Angeles, the Metropolitan in New York. They're all playing dumb. These museums have locked up the precious legacy of a million people and they reject all demands to return any of it. They consider these artifacts as spoils of war, an argument that does not hold water, neither morally nor legally. International law does not allow it. You see, the concept of finders keepers does not apply anymore. There's a United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. It reaffirms the right of a country to reclaim its treasures. It obliges museums to return property that was taken without free, prior and fair consent. In fact, this has been recognized by courts. In England, Ireland and the US, courts have ruled in favor of returning wrongfully acquired artifacts. They've said that other countries have sovereignty over items which they think constitute keys to their heritage. And it's not just courts who back this call. Human rights treaties also support what they call the right to culture. The right to reclaim what belongs to your culture. Take India, for instance. It was colonized for two centuries by the United Kingdom. And this was colonialism in its most predatory form. The British looted everyone and everything. In today's value, this loot would amount to a sum of $45 trillion. This is according to research by Columbia University Press. It says Britain drained a total of $45 trillion from India. Shouldn't the UK pay reparations for this? Forget reparations. The least it can do is return India's stolen artifacts, like the Kohinoor, one of the most precious diamonds in the world. This diamond was mined at the Kulur mine in India. It was unfairly ceded to Queen Victoria when Britain annexed Punjab in 1849. Today it adorns Queen Elizabeth's crown. Another priceless artifact is Maharaja Ranjit Singh's throne. It's covered with sheets of engraved gold. After the Anglo-Sikh war, it was moved to the Albert Museum. It's been in Britain ever since. Just like the sandstone idol of Lord Harihara from Madhya Pradesh. This 500 kg copper Buddha from Bihar. The sword of Tipu Sultan. They're all locked up at museums in Britain. What's the UK's excuse to keep them? Their argument is incredible. Most of the museums in Britain say their only aim is to make these objects available to all so that people from all over the world can come and see them, learn more about the roots and cultures they go from. They say they keep them for the rest of the world. Do you believe this? Do you buy this argument? It's like saying that some kid from Africa can always go to Britain to learn more about her culture. Why? Because Britain is the cultural capital of the world. Capital of colonial loot, more like. 
As for the public service they claim to do, here's what. People from all over the world can see African art in Africa too and Indian art in India too. In fact, the whole concept of these museums is more like a colonialist fantasy of neatly cataloging the entire world in a single air-conditioned building so that Westerners do not have to cross continents to uncomfortable climates to see them. My point is quite simple. Artifacts belong to the countries of their origin, to places where they can best be appreciated, to people for whom they have the most meaning. So by holding on to them and displaying them for a fee, Western museums are still benefiting from their colonial legacy, still validating their historical wrongs and injustices. Their empires have crumbled, but their sense of entitlement has not. Have you heard of the Rosetta Stone? You listen to Western Museum Must Return Stolen Artifacts. That's a video. You can go to YouTube and see and view and listen. And it raises some fundamental issues, particularly dealing with uh, people who are oppressed when you're talking about people who have the right to own and control their own culture. Brother Haki, listening to this particular piece, one of the things that came to my mind is that why is it that you want to take something, steal something um, that doesn't belong to you, and you say it has no value and you don't appreciate it? Can, we, can you give me your take of when you heard this particular um, video, what came to your mind in terms of this crime against humanity of going around the world and taking people, um, historical article facts? that belongs to them in, in their nation? Well, you know, one, one of the real ironies is that... Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Can you hear me? Yeah, one, yes, one of the real can. ironies... Yeah, yeah, one, one of the real ironies is that, you know, uh, there's beauty in, 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 in art. And, you know, art is art, and that's just the bottom line. I'm often, you know, I often... Think about when we, when we think about you know the the, the great painter of Pablo Picasso, and, and we think about the history of his paintings, which were which were influenced by you know African art, and so this, so this ability to see beauty you know transcends you know transcends culture. So I think one of the, one of the ironies is that while you know they recognize the beauty in terms of in terms of you know you know you know African or Indian art, I think one of the real ironies is that when you when you talk about you know Immigrants from Africa or India, you know, seeking to gain entry into Western states, and think about the kind of resistance that they they have to contend with. There's a real disconnect in terms of you know respect for beauty and respect for the people who produce such beauty. So clearly, you know, it gets down to a question in terms of economics. I think for the Western, you know, those five museums in the Western world, it comes down to 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 comes down to economics. And so they get a situation where they can take something beautiful and capitalize by making lots and lots of money. And the mere fact that when someone says that they, they're entitled to do that simply because these, these pieces or these artifacts are, are spoils of war uh, speaks to the kind of absurdity uh, that undergirds, you know, uh, you know Western intervention uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, intervention, you know, against, you know, against people of color. Often, you know, resources are taken under the guise that is justified in terms of this, 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 in terms of your noble ambitions, which are driven by you know so-called, uh, uh, you know so-called, you know so-called drive to, uh, 
so-called selfish gene that they called it. So um, it's very, very interesting, you know, so when you talk about the selfish gene, uh, it doesn't seem to manifest itself to the extent that you're willing to see uh, that if, if in fact, if, 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 if you're selfish in terms of others' resources, in terms of particular art, then you should be selfish in terms of how you treat those individuals. So it's a real disconnect in terms of that paradigm. And so clearly, you know, uh, I think that uh, the mere fact that they continue to do this is not going to, I don't anticipate them giving up those, those treasures. And uh, my, my bottom line is that, you know, and, and I think that one of the things is that, that has to happen, there has to be a mass movement in terms of, you know, you know African and Indian states in terms of pushing, you know, uh, uh, pushing this narrative in terms of getting these, these five museums in, in particular to return those treasures, but it's going to be a long fight. Brother Anthony, will you consider this behavior by Western Europe as a crime against humanity? Yes, uh, because it is the uh, it is denying uh, peoples their access to their uh, to their culture, and also uh, and also they're making. They're making uh, they're making big bucks off of it, and uh, so it's exploitative as well. And uh, I think it is it is a crime against humanity because it's denying uh, the creators of their cultural artifacts. Uh, you know the ability to uh, you know to appreciate them and to un- and to under uh, uh, and to understand their significance. And uh, this is uh, this is definitely a crime against humanity. Uh, and uh, you know the fact that they hoard these treasures is a legacy of colonialism. And it needs to be done away with, but only, but only a, 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 an organized and unified Africa can bring pressure to bear on these uh, imperialist countries uh, for the, uh, you know, for their, uh, you know, for their crimes. Uh, we're in a very scattered and disorganized state right now. So we cannot exert the pressure necessary uh, to force these museums to give up their ill-gotten gains. And uh, that is a reality. And it is sad because, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, without these artifacts, uh, people can't understand their contribution uh, to human development, and that is Thank very you. sad. Thank you, Brother Anthony, Brother Moses. They came, they stole, and they continue to steal. How do we reclaim our artifacts and the money that were made of it? How should we address that in the year 2022? I think Brother Anthony is on the money when he says we need a unified Africa. Um, we need to speak with one voice and uh, and demand return of these artifacts. Uh, I don't. It may not be impossible to, to do it without a unified Africa, but it, it's definitely 
calls for a unified Africa in terms of uh, what needs to be done. And, uh, you know, these these countries are uh, former colonizers and uh, and um, they just stripped the land, stripped the people of their resources. Uh, um, and that's just uh, the way imperialism works. And we have to recognize that and, and, and uh, demand a return of those goods. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Sister Eleanor, your response to this video, and one of the things I would like to say that when one looking at the history of Western Europe, one will come to a conclusion, conclusion, a conclusion that it's probably best to understand Western Europe from a position of look at what they do and not what they say. That's one of the things I got from this video. Your take on it, Sister Eleanor. Well, Brother Africa, I think Brother Anthony on, on point and what is beginning to happen. You see Ghana now for some 20 years has been working with uh, the Smithsonian and uh, in developing conservation programs and um, developing museums that are uh, for the purpose of maintaining and uh uh, keeping and 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 preparing for the return of objects that were taken uh, during colonialism, and so that that will definitely happen with the United Africa. And as Brother Haki mentioned, you know he mentioned Picasso, who was a Cubist, and uh, the Futurist, uh, the Italian movement at the same time, and the. Uh, Russian movement, the constructionist movement, really was influenced by African art and that sort of thing. But I think that Brother Anthony's on point. Um, The world is changing. Uh, No longer uh, are the only museums necessarily going to be in the global north. I think that uh, museums and, 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 and curators and historians and conservationists are skilled conservationists are going to be seeing that as a, uh, living in their own countries and, and having these kind of facilities that support these occupations and the preservation of this art is a real reality and it's happening before our very eyes and I, and I think that's a great thing. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. We're going to make our transition to our third video, which is titled The Evil Reason Why the West is Stopping Africa from Making Its Own Medicine. The Evil Reason Why the West is Stopping Africa from Making Its Own Vaccine. Let's listen to this and we'll come back. We'd like to hear your response. Welcome to Candid Africa truthful and unapologetic. And I want to talk about the issue of access to vaccines. We have made a proposal which is supported by more than 100 countries. And what we have said is we want, and this comes back to what the youth were saying as well, they want to know whether they have a continent which will help to develop their skills, where they can thrive. But what do we want? We want to be able to make our own vaccines. And we will deal with the issue of reluctance 
for our Africans to take vaccines. But we want to make vaccines. We don't just want to fill and finish and package, which is what we are being offered, that we want you to build capacity to fill, finish, and package, and we will send you the drug substance. And we say, no, we want you to relax the intellectual property rights for a while so that we can make the drug substance because we have the capability. And there are quite a number of countries on the continent that can. And right now, we've got countries like Egypt, Nigeria, uh, Ghana, Senegal, Rwanda, South Africa, and Kenya. Easily, they have the capability, the manufacturing capability. And we are saying we want to be able, we want to go beyond just getting the substance from Europe or wherever, filling and distributing. We want to make the drug substance because that is where the intellectual property resides. And that is where we want our young people who are epidemiologists, who are scientists, to see that there is a future for them. Then they will not go to Europe. They will not go to America. They will stay here because they will know that they can work effectively and display all the skills we have. Now, what does the, world, the, the, the northern part of the world do? They say, no, we know what is good for you. We just want you to do fill and finish, and that's it. And we say, no, we no longer want that. You did that long ago when you colonized us, and when you raped and pillaged our countries, we're saying, no, now we have the capability, and we want to make all these things ourselves. Now, quite often we find that there is a bit of paternalism that underpins the relationship between us. I'll give you a very good example. After Omicron uh, was announced, I was due to travel to West Africa. And in traveling uh, in the wake of Omicron, I received calls from the four presidents that I was going to travel to, President Makisal, Buhari, Watara, uh, as well as uh, Akufunana. And they said, we've heard about this Omicron. Omicron, are you still coming? We want you to come. What can we do to help? And, and I said, President, 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 if you're still relaxed about our coming, we are coming. A plain load of us, together with journalists, we got on the way. Before I left, I also got some calls from Europe. And the calls were so paternalistic. They were saying, hello, President Ramaphosa. We've heard about this Omricon. I am sorry to tell you that we are banning travel to Europe from South Africa and Southern Africa. No discussion, no attempt to hear what our views are. And I'm saying that the relationship needs to, needs to be mutually respectful. We need to respect one another. The African presidents respected me as we respect one another. But from Europe, I just got a message of saying, we've banned travel, thank you, goodbye, see you next time.
That's not the way to conduct relationship. Did you like or hate what you heard? Let us know in the comments. You just listen to a video where you can go to YouTube and view it, dealing with the evil reasons why the West is trying to stop Africa from making its own vaccine. Uh, as we talk about the theme, discussing the truth about Africa, let's discuss this. You just heard this documentary, Brother Hakeem. I think fundamentally uh, what the brother was saying to me is that they don't want Africa to be independent and be self-sufficient and being able to take care of their own people. So what do you make up a policy with countries which try to deny other countries for having access to basic health and welfare where they can take care of their own people? It's your own take, Brother Haki, when you heard this video. You know, Brother Africa, one of the things, you know, um, there is the material aspect of imperialism, and we certainly can quantify that, and we understand that. But there's also a psychological dimension in terms of imperialism. And one of the things is that when we talk about imperialism, there's a certain amount of contempt, you know, um, for the global south. Uh, and so we've got to be very clear on that point. And so when President Ramaphosa proposes, you know, more respect between the West and Africa, I think, I think, unfortunately, I think it's 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 a, it's a narrative, you know, uh, you know, is 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 quite frankly, uh, somewhat naive. Uh, the bottom line is that, you know, when you look at the the, the history of um, U.S. African relations, America has never did anything in terms of the interests of Africa. The West generally has never done anything in the interests of Africa. That's not going to change. And so why do we keep persisting that somehow through dialogue, through discourse, that somehow that that, that, that paradox or that, that, per, that, 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 that relationship is somehow is going to change? Uh, the bottom line is not going to change. And so in that context, I mean, we've got to be very, very clear on that. And so when he talks about, you know, the intellectual properties, you know, you know, uh, you know giving up the intellect, you know, banning intellectual properties, uh, the, the bottom line is that when, when you talk about the psychological aspect in prison, when you talk about the role of finances, it's, it's pivotal, it's primary in terms of the motivation of the Western world. And so, therefore, what you're essentially saying is that we want the West to give up your pursuit of, of profit uh, to do what's right for humanity. It's, you're talking a language which they don't understand. And I fail to understand why, we, why does Africa persist in attempting these dialogues or to express uh, uh, discontent You know when the western world does something that's disrespectful That is part and parcel Of the way the west interacts with Africa And so therefore it seems to me That we have to fundamentally understand That reality in Africa itself Has to move in terms of Creating the, the, creating the conditions In which west, the west Is bound to respect them And that's the only way it's going to be done It's not going to be done through discourse And so I'm, I'm sort of hard pressed to even understand you know, uh, 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 President Ramaphosa's position. And so when you talk about paternalism, I mean, of course, I mean, that goes without, without saying. I mean, that's, that's what imperialism is. It's the grandest kind of paternalism is that we dictate to you, you do as we say. And it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty clear on that. And finally, Brother Africa, with respect to the, the banning of flights, uh, one of the things, you know, is very, very interesting, you know, uh, he, those eight African, South African states that he banned, it's interesting because only two of them had a case of had a case of the Omicron variant, so there was really no justification to ban those flights. Uh, and, 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 and out of those eight, 
uh, three of them didn't have, don't have any cases at all on Omicron variant. So clearly, that's enough justification for not banning those flights. Um, and lastly, one of the things about Africa, when you think about in terms of the spread of the Omicron, and particularly we talk about Omicron spread throughout the U.S., where currently three out of four cases are Omicron variants, it seems to me that when you talk about the spread of Omicron, it, the direct doesn't come from Africa, it comes from the United States. And so, therefore, betting those flights was, a, was an act of paternalism. And I think it's important that we understand that and, and begin to understand that we got to, we got to, we got to get, put an end to this nonsense in terms of, you know, attempting to, to appease the West and try to somehow reason with them and understand the bottom line is that as long as their motivation is pursuit of profit, then human rights doesn't have a leg to stand on. We have to fundamentally understand that and do those things that we have to do to empower ourselves to be in a position to compete against the West, but the only way we can do that, we have to be unified. This is very simple, and I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Hockey. Transitioning to Brother Anthony, when you heard that video, Brother Anthony, one of the issues that came out is the West still want to keep African country in the status of inferiority of being still colonized. Um, when you heard that, Brother Anthony, I think one of the things that it does, in order to look at Africa and tell the truth about Africa, is that when you hear on the news that when many African countries is rejecting these European medicines, medicines and, and vaccinations, is because that they feel like they would be better secure if they allowed them to make their own. Your response to that, Brother Anthony? I think that's true, uh, and I think, uh, and I think, uh, you know, right now because Africa is dominated by neocolonialism, it is disrespected, and uh, and uh, you know, Africa's uh, you know betrayed as a nation of beggars. And uh, and the thing about it, though, the only way Africa is going to realize its power is through political unification under scientific socialism. And uh, and uh, you know, and uh, these small microstates that Africa's divided into. Which is a holdover from uh, uh, from the Berlin Conference of 1884 to 85 are not uh, politically, economically, or militarily viable, and that is what Pan Africanists uh, such as Nkrumah, Sekoutoure, uh, and Kwame Ture have been saying for decades. And uh, until Africa unites and is able to assert its power, uh, power, uh, 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 let's see, uh, power isn't given without demand, as Frederick Douglass used to say, and it isn't. And uh, and the only way that Africa is going to uh, is going to get its rights as a nation is if it unites under one unified socialist government. And uh, that's the only way. Otherwise, uh, as long as Africa is fragmented into 54 different uh, individual states, 
which are, for the most part, aren't economically, politically, or militarily viable, it is going to continue to get disrespected by the forces of capitalism. Thank you, Brother Amphis. We'll go to my sister Eleanor. We can see, based upon the response of this video from home, Africa, they say they are quite capable of making their own medicines. So why should they be willing to want to take medicines, vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer where they can create their own? What is your response based upon what you just heard, Sister Eleanor? Um, quite frankly, I agree with Brother Anthony. And as you know, I have a, I'm a big proponent of allowing pharmaceuticals that are able to produce the vaccine uh, for Moderna and Pfizer to uh, make that proprietary information available to anyone who can use it and produce the vaccine. And as we know, South Africa, as you said, Nigeria, Kenya, as the speaker said, so many countries are prepared to do that. I think it's greed that is motivating these two pharmaceutical companies. And I think there needs to be political pressure from not only the everyone on planet Earth, but also from the Biden White House. He's asked that they release their proprietary information, but there's been no force. And the U.S. taxpayers paid for the development of this vaccine. So I think it's very important that the continent uh, be allowed, the uh, nation states in Africa, and other countries who are capable of it be allowed to manufacture the vaccine without threat of um, retaliatory legal retaliation. And um, the World Health Organization and others, the African Union, have to step in and put the pressure on. It's 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 badly needed. And as the speaker said, the vaccine hesitancy on the continent is something that uh, people are experiencing because they've been failed by the medical system before. But uh, give the countries, give everyone on planet Earth an opportunity to save lives with the production of the corona um, vaccine. So I, I support that very much, Brother Africa. Thank you. Brother Moses, is a wide thing to trust a pharmaceutical company who doesn't have your interests hot, who is hostile towards your well-being? No, um, these pharmaceutical companies are capitalist, uh, profit-driven, and um, they have, don't have the interests of the people in command. And uh, so, you know, we have to recognize that and uh, and and continue to put pressure on them and uh to to do the correct thing. Uh President Biden needs to step up his game in, in terms of uh pursuing getting the proprietary rights out and uh and recognize that the people of the US paid for these research and that uh we have a vested interest in it. And uh, you know, it's it's the people before profits, that's the bottom line. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. 
we're going to make our transition, and we're going to talk about the Biden administration and their attitude towards Africa as relates to his recent decision of banning eight African nations from traveling to the United States under the idea that they would spread this virus to people in the United States. Brother Haki alluded to it earlier, but we're going to hear it directly from home. So we want everybody to pay close attention to it, and we will respond to it in a few minutes. This is Africa Travel Ban by At yesterday's White House press briefing, Jen Psaki claimed that there are potentially thousands of new COVID cases in South Africa. Therefore, she said a travel ban against several countries in Southern Africa will remain in effect. One reporter from Africa was in the room. He wasn't buying it. Objective is. I have to wrap this up in a minute, but Patsy, go ahead. Patsy, Patsy, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, just following up, following up, uh, Patsy. I just answered. Simon, I answered a question on this. Let Patsy. Simon, Simon, I answered a question on this. Let's let Patsy ask a question. It's not effective to scream over your colleagues in here. Let's let's let Patsy ask a question. Simon Atiba is the man you just saw in that clip. He's the White House correspondent for Today News Africa, and he joins us now. So, Simon, do you think you were being disrespected by the Biden White House? Thank you for having me, uh, Jesse, and I'm, I'm so glad to be here. And I, I thought Fox News were for, full of racists and hate black and hate Africans, but here you have me, uh, someone who was born in Africa and covers the White House for, uh, for Today News Africa. Uh, I think that the travel ban was based on a lie. The president on November 26 banned eight African countries. Only two of those countries had any case of Omicron uh, variant. Six of the other countries had zero case of the variant. And let me give you an example of uh, Namibia, one of the countries the president banned. It's a small country in southern Africa. 2.5 million people. In two years, they've had only 400 cases of COVID-19 in the entire country. And they have zero case, zero case of the Omicron variant. Yet the president banned them. And right now there's total chaos because people can't travel to Namibia. People can't travel to, to Zimbabwe. People can't travel to Mozambique. Yet they have zero case. So I believe that I wasn't the one who was disrespected. I think Africa was disrespected by banning countries based on a lie. So the Biden people say the scientists told Biden to slap the travel ban on these southern African countries, and he's just doing what the scientists want him to do. Are you buying that? Or do you think there's something more? Yeah, it's a total lie. The way people see it in Africa, the the scientists, I I spoke to the WHO before coming here, and I've attended all the press briefings of the WHO in the past two years, and I've asked more questions at the WHO press briefing than any reporters in the world. And the WHO believes that the travel ban don't prevent variant. The Gavi told me travel ban don't prevent variant from spreading. Africa CDC told me travel bans don't prevent variant from spreading. 
So uh, I believe that it was a very uh, ill-thought idea, and I believe that any scientist who says you should ban countries that have zero variant and allow countries that have variants to come to the U.S., it's, it's, I, I believe it's a, it's a bad advice, and, and I think that it seems dis discriminatory and it almost seems a bit racist because all those countries, all the eight countries, uh, black African countries. Can you imagine if the former president, Donald Trump, and I'm not his fan, I disagree with his tweet, I disagree with 150 percent, but can you imagine if he had banned eight African countries and those countries, six of those countries have zero case, zero case of the variant, there would have been an uprising. They would brand him a racist, someone who hates black and hates Africa. And, and yet we, we are seeing it in this administration. So I believe that Africa has been disrespected, and I believe that the travel ban uh, do not really make sense. And any scientist who says that you should ban a country that has zero case and has had 400 cases of COVID-19 in two years and not ban the UK that had 22 yeah. cases and I had uh, hundreds of thousands of people dying in the past two years, uh, Cannot, uh, it, that cannot be good science. Well, the theoretical situation that you just mentioned, if Donald Trump had done that, he would have been scorched as a racist, shows me that you, Simon, know more about how this country works than a lot of the people in this country do. Thanks for coming on Fox News. You're always welcome. We appreciate it. Th thank you for having me. Brother Haki, clearly seems to policy by the Biden administration on making that decision, it has an undertaking of not only being very racist, but but economically speaking, it created create, um, hardships for these African countries. And I'm saying all of this because the so-called elections coming up in two years, and this is going to be the same man that could go into the African communities in the United States and tell the Africans vote for them, that he is their friend. What do you make of this objective reality of his policies as it relates to Africa and his treatment of African people in this country? When you look at the lack of his, the lack of his administration addressing anything productively, positively, when it comes to African interests in themselves. You know, Brother Africa, uh, one one of the things is as much as we like to believe that somehow. Um, there is a qualitative difference between uh, Trump and, and Biden. Reality is a lot of the, the racist uh, tendencies uh, that exist in Trump also exist in, in President Biden. Uh, Biden is just a little more circumspect in terms of how that uh, racism is, is revealed or conveyed. But so clearly, uh, when you look at in terms of his policies, in terms of the kind of antagonism imposed upon, you know, um, you know, the Southern African countries with respect to COVID, this Omicron variant, it speaks to a, 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 a rather uh, blatant kind of um, uh, discriminatory mindset. Because when you start and think about it, as the journalist alluded to, one of the things when you talk about the spread of Omicron, clearly uh, the Western states are more, um, are more um, responsible for the, for the spread of Omicron in African states, but yet you, you, you're singling out at South African states specifically uh, for, you know, uh, being carriers of Omicron. 
So clearly, the intent it doesn't it doesn't suggest uh, uh, anything other than a discriminatory intent in terms of uh, U.S. foreign policy. I, I think one of the things when you talk about the economic aspect, I think we had to be very very clear. You know that Africa is very very important in terms of the in terms of the uh, in terms of the interests of the United States. When I, earlier when I talked about the fact that when we talk about the decline in the economy, and we talk about the role of inflation, and we look in terms of the desperation that's that's uh, confronting the economy, uh, clearly the only way to get those the resources that they need uh, clearly uh, um, force is important. In order to as a prerequisite in terms of actually using force in terms of uh, against African states, uh, you got to create the perception that somehow there's something fundamentally, something unsavory, something wrong with African states. So if you can characterize African states as somehow germy or diseasy or disease spreaders, then it makes it all the more uh, uh, fathomable that you can that you can use that 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 basis as a basis to intervene militarily. And this is the problem that we have in terms of U.S.-African relationships. So I think you're absolutely correct, Brother Africa. So when we talk about this propensity in terms of the racist, racism that comes out of Biden's mouth, uh, clearly, you know, he represents the status quo. And a lot of those value systems, a lot of the views, uh, he actually have internalized. And that's very, very clear. And so for anyone who actually thinks that, that fundamentally that he's going to alter, uh, you know, that mindset after, after decades in positions of power, facilitating policies specifically designed to disempower African people, then I got a then I got a, another thing for you. So clearly, Brother Africa, you're absolutely correct. Uh this this propensity in terms of racism reveals itself in many, many kinds of many, many kinds of ways. And I think this is just the latest uh in terms of, you know, uh you know, his position in terms of Omicron, how that uh, racism actually uh, uh reveals itself. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony definitely when we talk about this whole process of vaccination on uh, the West led by these two pharmaceutical companies they have weaponized it most people don't realize countries that have not been able to develop their own vaccine are being presented with the option of either accept their vaccine was not trustworthy and turn over your natural resources turn over your infrastructure turn over your army and military so with that kind of behavior and policy, Brother Anthony, it being weaponized that too in their faction, um, why would you want to accept uh, or trust again um, uh, companies with, with that kind of behavior demeanor? So what do you think about what you just heard and this whole question of um, how this vaccine thing is being weaponized, particularly against countries in the South? Mm. I think you raise a good, uh, a valid, valid points, Brother Africa. Uh, it is being weaponized, and uh, countries, particularly countries in the South, are being discouraged from uh, developing, uh, you know, their their own alternatives for dealing with uh, the pandemic. And uh, and that doesn't bode, uh, uh, you know, well for the world uh, because, um, you know, uh, COVID-19, just like uh, any other, uh, any other uh, you know, uh, natural phenomena, does not respect political boundaries. 
And so the more, uh, actually, uh, the more people develop their own ways of dealing with this uh, pandemic, the better off the world would be. And uh, but it is a reflection of uh, uh, of uh, you know uh, uh, of Africa's weakness that uh, that it uh, that it is disrespected uh, throughout the world, especially by uh, the imperialist countries. And uh, the only way to overcome that is that Africa must unite and it, and the people must get better organized because as long as Africa is disrespected Africans throughout the world are disrespected as well and uh we see this manifest itself every day in terms of uh the way uh the media uh, uh, treats Africa and African people, and uh, the only solution is uh, is Pan Africanism. That is the only way. To, uh, uh, there's no other way around that. And as long as Africa is fragmented uh, into uh, you know small political states. Is going to continue to be exploited by imperialist forces. Thank you, Brother Evans. Says Eleanor, your take. They don't lie sometimes, Eleanor. They lie all the time. They just lie on Africa as relates to the travel ban. Your response to this, 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 this characterization of constant lying on Mother Africa, says Eleanor. Well, Brother Africa, as you know. I am a strong proponent of releasing the intellectual information to allow any pharmaceutical manufacturer on global earth to produce this vaccine. And uh, that's the bottom line. And as Brother Anthony and Brother Robert said, Brother Robert said it so well, this is just pure capitalism. Every time a dose goes out, goes somewhere, Moderna and Pfizer are making money. And they don't care about the people. They don't care about who, who dies, who, who doesn't. They're concerned with the bottom line, their profits. And in reference to uh, President Biden versus President Trump, unfortunately, there's a real difference. Trump was a fascist. He wanted to shoot demonstrators in the United States. Now, the Democrats have been waffling on two major pieces of legislation that would protect voter rights in this country. We've seen 37 states take action to suppress voters' rights coming up in the uh, uh, 2023 election. Uh, It might be 2022, so forgive me if I misspoke. But the bottom line is anyone who has the capability of producing this uh, vaccine needs to be allowed to do so. Also, if we could uh, stop the Cuban embargo, Cuba would, I'm sure, share its vaccine as it has with people in Venezuela and other countries with our African brothers and sisters. So the real issue is profit 
and um, the guy, that Fox News guy, he's the guy that deals with disinformation. So he brought that reporter on to make a slur and to confuse Americans with what's happening. You know, there was just that December uh, 10th conference in Dallas. This information is put out and looks so real in the media, Brother Africa. It's unbelievable. We have half of America believing the election was stolen. So the bottom line is the vaccine. And, yes, the um, proprietary information needs to be released. And as long as the World Health Organization is asking people like Bill Gates what he thinks, we're not going to get anywhere. And it's a lot of subterfuge. But the bottom line is if we're going to stop this pandemic, we're going to have to vaccinate and save everyone. And anyone who can produce the vaccine needs to have that proprietary information to do so. And as the speaker said in the video, this would allow the young scientists, uh, the young doctors, to see that there is value in staying home and building pharmaceutical facilities and medical institutions that are just as great as those in the global north. Thank you, Brother Africa. Let's get the proprietary information out, let people produce and be vaccinated. Sister Eleanor, I hear you. I hear you, but I must say this to you. I don't see no fundamental difference between the two candidates that you just talked about, Biden and um, Trump. Because one would stop you to death, one would deny you medicine, one would kill you to a different form than another one. All of this is a form of genocide killing. And I think we need to understand the difference between, qualitative difference between um, change and reform. But anyway, let's continue to move forward. Brother Moses, come and talk to me. What's your take based upon what you just heard tonight, Brother Moses? Yeah, the vaccine needs to be distributed uh um, that's the bottom line we face with capitalist country, uh, companies. And, uh, you know, we need uh, the World Health Organization and other organizations to uh, get on board with, with getting the vaccine distributed and, uh, and dropping the proprietary rights, et cetera. Uh, listen to that. Okay. I don't know how you can do that. I don't know what else to I say see. other than that. I see y'all have a lot of trust in any two uh, pharmaceutical companies. I don't have that kind of trust, but I hear you. Let's move forward to our last video for the day, which I think is the central theme for the whole night as we talk about a theme, discussing the truth about Africa. What is this all about, the race for Africa? Let's listen and come back, and I'd like to hear your response. Today we'll talk about Africa, once seen by Europe as the antithesis of civilization, the heart of darkness in the words of a certain Joseph Conrad. Centuries later, Africa remains ignored. It makes news for its conflicts, poverty and exoticism. For the longest time, the world saw it as a lost cause. Then one country saw opportunity and thus began a new race for Africa, not very different from the scramble of the 19th century when colonial Britain and France wanted raw materials, slaves and geopolitical influence. Now in the 21st century, global powers are in more or less the same race. 
China, the United States, India, the European Union, Japan, Israel, Canada, all of these countries are in the race for Africa. And one country is emerging as the clear winner. Hello and welcome to Gravitas Plus. I'm Palki Sharma Upadhyay and this is Africa, a continent of 54 sovereign states, 17% of the world's population, 9.6% of the global oil output, 90% of the world's platinum supply, 90% of the world's cobalt supply, half of the world's gold supply, two-thirds of the world's manganese, 35% of the world's uranium, 75% of the world's coltan, and 54 votes in the United Nations General Assembly. This is what makes Africa so attractive and makes the continent a battleground for global powers. There are numerous fronts, investment and infrastructure, military power, diplomacy, soft power, trade, geopolitics. Every country has its own interest in Africa. In 2016, Israel began its scramble for the continent. Benjamin Netanyahu became the first Israeli prime minister to visit Africa in 50 years. What did he want? Votes. In favor of Israel and against Palestine in the United Nations resolutions. Africa and Israel share similar histories, he said. Israel went on to sponsor solar, water and agricultural technologies. In the same year, 2016, Senegal co-sponsored a UN resolution. It condemned the construction of illegal Jewish settlements in the West Bank. What did Israel do? It cancelled the Mashav drip irrigation project. And this is just one example. Here's another one. The European Union has pledged more than $54 billion in sustainable investment for Africa. What does the EU want? Access to the African market of 1.3 billion people. Brussels has negotiated free trade agreements with at least 40 African countries. But does this ensure a balanced two-way trade? It doesn't. And no country has a bigger interest in Africa than China. China is funding one in five infrastructure projects in Africa. It is building every third one. Africa has an infrastructure deficit and China has a signed checkbook. Starting 2005, China has invested at least $2 trillion in Africa. It built 6,200 kilometers of railways, including the continent's longest railway line connecting Ethiopia and Djibouti. Beijing has also built the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa. What does China get in return? A lot. Geopolitical influence to start with. Beijing is selling its culture, its currency. In Guinea-Bissau, exit signs are written in Mandarin. China has established at least 50 Confucius Institutes across 33 countries. Several African countries use Chinese currency. China also gets a strategic overseas base. In 2017, China built its first overseas base at the Horn of Africa, Djibouti to be specific. Djibouti connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Indian Ocean via the Suez Canal. The base has the capacity to accommodate 10,000 troops. China also gets a market to dump its goods. China is Africa's largest trading partner. Chinese trade has increased 40-fold in the last two decades. At least 10,000 Chinese firms operate in Africa. This is according to a McKinsey study. Africa has resources and China has access. Did you know that a third of China's investments in Africa are in the mining sector? And finally, it gets to debt trap Africa. But here's the thing. China is not the only country investing in this continent. It's not even the biggest. The United States is Africa's largest investor. It accounts for $54 billion of FDI stock. There are 600 American companies operating in South Africa alone. And this, even after the U.S. president called Africa this. For the longest time, Africa was nothing but a war zone for Washington. 
It has over 7,000 troops deployed in the continent. They are spread across some 13 African countries, including Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Central African Republic, Chad, Democratic Republic of Congo, Kenya, Libya, Mali, Mauritania, Niger, South Sudan, Somalia, and Tunisia. For the U.S., Africa was a continent for counter-terrorism operations. What happened then? Why is the U.S. suddenly interested in Africa? The answer is this. For the U.S., Africa is now a new front to take on China, and Washington is now fighting it out for power and influence. An article on the U.S. State Department website reads, and I quote, Africa is the continent of the future. Thus, we need to make the most of its potential. By 2050, its population will more than double to 2.2 billion people with over 60% under the age of 25. Where is Africa's interest in all of this? Also, what about India? What role does India play in this continent? New Delhi's ties with Africa date back to the time of Mahatma Gandhi. India was part of the Bandung project of 1955. New Delhi supported Africa's anti-colonial struggles. It supported the liberalization movements in Ghana, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau. India also raised the issue of racism in South Africa. It will be unfair to say, though, that India's newfound interest in Africa has nothing to do with China. In 2018, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi toured key African states just ahead of Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit. In 2018, India decided to open 18 new embassies in Africa. India has defense partnerships with Zambia, Nigeria, Ghana, Ethiopia, Botswana, Uganda, Mozambique and Namibia. New Delhi is currently training African military. Indian company Airtel is a dominant telecom firm in Africa. New Delhi is offering 50,000 scholarships to African students. Despite everything, India is far behind China in the race for Africa. China's Belt and Road Initiative has sealed its hold on Africa. If in the 1900s, Africa was colonized with force, in 2020, it is being trapped by loans. China accounts for 14% of sub-Saharan debt. In Kenya, the volume of Chinese loans is six times that of France, which is the country's second largest creditor. And Sri Lanka can tell you what happens when Chinese loans are not repaid. China is looking to capture Africa. It has a strong diaspora. It is spending big money. It is selling its movies, culture and currency. China extracts raw materials. It manufactures products with them and sells them back to this continent. Does this remind you of something? What did the British do in India? In the 19th century, the rivalry between Britain and France fueled Africa's colonization. In the 21st century, the trade war between the United States and China is hastening the same. Just like the 19th century, there are numerous countries in the scramble for Africa. And just like the 19th century, there is nothing in it for Africa. Gravitas Plus. Co-presented by Scope. The Race for Africa, Brother Haki. From your own perspective, can you give me an assessment of what is this race all about and why is everybody racing for Africa but African people who live outside of Africa? They seem to still get a legion to where they live in that. They still seem to give allegiance to a capitalist imperialist system that have that has no respect for them. They yeah. seem to be well, there seem to be a disconnect. Some refer to Africa and America together when the two two, two dialectical oppose each other. So, give us some context of the importance of why others see Africa as a important foundation for their future. 
I remember I read an article by uh, what's that boy Clinton, Bill Clinton. He went over and visited the Congo one time, and he stated that the Congo is large enough to feed the whole world. He called the bread basket. Also, people can see the value of our home, but us. But talk to us from your take. What is this issue about the race for Africa? Everybody racing to Africa, and Africans are running away from Africa. What's the danger of that, Brother Haki? Uh, yeah, well, the sister pretty much laid it out in terms of, you know, uh, when she gave some statistics in terms of the raw resources or the potential of Africa. Uh, there's, no, there's no secret that Africa possesses great resources, natural resources in terms of uh, the, the needs of the world. Uh, one of the things is that when we talk about these tremendous resources, one of the problems is that we, we have to understand the role in terms of the kind of uh, uh, uh the kind of uh, coercion, uh, the kind of exploitation that takes place, particularly when we talk about Western banks, the IMF, the World Bank, in terms of their role they play in terms of creating a scenario in which exploitation is possible. Now, one of the things I have to point out, Brother Africa, and I think it's important we, we have to deal with honestly, is that when we talk about the exploitation of Africa, we can't talk about the exploitation of Africa without talking about the interests served by those individuals living in Africa uh, who benefit from this kind of relationship. And so when we talk about the, the role of neocolonialism in Africa, we talk about the Africans who are willing to sell their soul, to sell their countries, you know, for, for material gain, it is a problem. Uh, it's a very, very, very big problem. And so one of the things that often, often we become a bit idealistic, we want to believe that, in fact, that some, some countries are more um, uh, altruistic, are more caring about Africa than other countries. Uh, when we compare U.S. and China in terms of their relationship with Africa, fundamentally one thing we have to understand qualitatively, there is no difference. It's a simple question of form in terms of how this exploitation is going to take place. I like to believe, the bottom line is that at some point, the Central Committee of China will come to the realization that, uh, you know, that uh, the kind of influence that exists over Africa is down in the long-term interests of Africa. But more importantly, it's important for African, African leadership to understand, you know, that to set some limits in terms of making sure that kind of, uh, that kind of control of Africa doesn't take place. But having said that, I think when we talk about, you know, the United States and Africa in terms of, you know, intent, there's essentially no, there's no difference in terms of intent. We like to believe that, in fact, that China is much more uh, altruistic, that they really care about Africa. But the bottom line is that, you know, as the sister alluded to, it's a simpler question in terms of, of style. And so when we talk about a debt, a debt trap, whether you're talking about investments from the United States or you're talking about infrastructure repairs from China, the bottom line is Africa comes beholden to outside powers. And so when she alluded to the fact that we started talking about Africans actually putting language um, signs up in Mandarin or actually talk about the, the, the use of Chinese currencies or you talk about the uh, – or you talk about in terms of these, these centers, you know, teaching Mandarin, when you think about all these things, all these things are, are good in the abstract. But when you talk about reality in terms of the, 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 the potential negative impact on Africa as a continent, then we can't be somehow, we can't delude ourselves into believing that you know, these things are going to turn out well. The bottom line, they're not going to turn out well. Again, but African leaders have to be in the forefront in terms of preventing that. But the problem is that we got so much corruption on the continent that just selling our souls and not even recognizing, you know, that selling your soul is not of your long-term interest because in part, People who believe that materialism, who define human beings, are more apt to be corrupted because as long as you give them things, they're willing to play ball. 
even if that means their own demise. So that's 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 a problem. Uh, so with respect to America, that's no question about it. America has no has no uh, has no uh, obligation in terms of or, or responsibility to Africa. And so when she talk about the military, you know, bases throughout Africa, they're not there because they give a damn about Africa. Not only are they there to 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 kind of you know China's influence in Africa, but more importantly to conduct kind of terrorism operations. Because one of the things that's important is that because the United States is becoming increasingly bankrupt and there is no money, the only way they can get the resources they need is you take what you want. So those militaries are there to one to establish the leadership, corrupt leadership, to make sure that they have access to the resources they need uh, to to kill those who who pose a threat to U.S. interests by assassinations and so forth and so on, or incarceration. Uh, and so these kind of things uh, are, are possible when we talk about counterterrorism operations in Africa. And so African leaders who, who open-handedly embrace, you know, uh, you, know, you know, these kinds of interventions, uh, you know, it seems to me that there's something fundamentally wrong in terms of, uh, you know, um, the level of, of greed uh, that gets in the way in terms of rational thinking when it comes to the decisions being made in Africa. Uh, so clearly, Brother Africa, you know, one of the things is, you know, so the, and finally, Brother Africa, when we talk about the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, one of the things that, you know, when we talk about infrastructure repair, Africa needs infrastructure. But it can't, but it can't come at the cost of, 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 of selling your soul. And I think essentially that is what Africa is doing. And one of the big criticisms is that when Chinese, you know, uh, have these infrastructure uh, projects, they often bring over, you know, tens of thousands of Chinese to actually do it, as opposed to utilizing the talent that exists in Africa. The question is, why not African leaders say, hey, 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 no, 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 that's not acceptable. You know, no, we don't mind investments. We don't mind you have people come over here in terms of supervised capacity. But what you're not going to do is you're not going to supplant African labor with Chinese labor. You're not going to do that. Because what's going to happen, at some point, Africans will wake up and find themselves, you know, subjugated, you know, by people who happen to be Chinese. And whether or not this is conscious or unconscious is beside the point. The point is that the conditions are being set to make that that becoming to make that inevitable. And that is a problem in terms of the struggle, this 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 race for Africa. So something that can only be confronted by African leadership, and African leadership have to uh, uh, take the lead in terms of making making sure that doesn't happen. Thank you, brother Haki, brother Anthony. As you listen to this video. One of, one of the things came to my mind was the speech that Kuma gave when Ghana first received our independence in 58, 57, and also the speech he gave in 63 at the founding of the OAU, where he talked about the importance of all of Africa countries be united and unified as one. He understood the importance of having his own bank and currency. He understood the importance of having a continental uh, army, and we can see that today, of a need for that. Um, so will you speak to our uh, listening audience in terms of the need for or the importance of, of, of understanding and developing Pan-Africanism and how they can play a role to improve all African people's lives? Give us your take on the development and importance of understanding Pan-Africanism today. Sure. Uh, I want to reiterate a point I made uh, earlier and a point I make every program, that Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification 
of Africa under scientific socialism. And uh, this is important because it's only a unified socialist Africa that can defeat, uh, uh, that can put an end to, uh, to Africa's capitalist exploitation and can uh, defeat imperialism in all of its manifestations once and for all. And uh, and it is only only through its uh, uh, through Pan-Africanism that it can stand uh, uh, stand up to the superpowers that are after Africa's resources. As uh, the clip pointed out, uh, Africa. Uh, is a leading producer of several minerals that are needed by imperialism in order to sustain its weaponry and uh, and its uh, uh, resources. And uh, and the only way that Africa can get control of its resources schools so that they benefit African people is through Pan-Africanism. Uh, so it's very important. Uh, right now, uh, Africa is disorganized and, and uh, the leadership is corrupt. Uh, people have to organize and get rid of that corrupt leadership and uh, uh, and uh, generate a leadership uh, that is going to work for Pan-Africanism. And uh, it's going to take a lot of, it's going to take a lot of work, but it is possible and absolutely necessary for Africa's survival. And Africans have, hist- have historically done whatever uh, is needed for Africa's uh, survival, and uh, this will not be an exception. Uh, and uh, but it's going to take organization and political education on the part of the African masses in order to bring this about. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Suzelle Eleanor, when we talk about the race for Africa, it seems like you have Africans in this country focus is still lies in, in the geographical border of the U.S. Maybe we would be better serve if our focus would be looking at Africa and seeing how we can unite with our brothers <clears throat> back home with free Africa. Your response? That I agree with you that we need to focus on our brothers and sisters in Africa and uh, the diaspora throughout the Americas and the world. Um, one of the things that was mentioned in the video was China's grab for uh, Africa. The infrastructure that China is building is not being repaired. It's building a new infrastructure. And one of the things that happened when Djibouti wasn't able to pay its debt, China seized land for a military base uh, that holds 10,000 people. 
Now, the U.S. has been trying to use uh, diplomacy and U.S. imperialism. And as you know, the African Growth and Opportunity Act, the AGOA, um, signed by Bill Clinton in 2000, opened up uh, the continent to tariff-free access to the U.S. market. Uh, to goods manufactured in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, just a few weeks ago, we saw that Ethiopia was being threatened that it would not be able to participate in the AGOA. But what's happening right now in Africa uh, with Israel and and the big struggle in, in Senegal for more than two decades has been clean water and the entire country to have access to clean water and cutting off its development simply because the Senegalese standing up for human rights, the human rights of Palestinians who are living under uh, Israeli apartheid, it just speaks to the confusion and the chaos. But the bottom line is that this this railway that China built, it's militarily strategic. And why is China, we have to ask ourselves, why is China investing so much in, in, in establishing a Chinese diaspora? And uh, why is it not, the U.S., for what it's worth, it has 7,000 troops in Africa. In the Cameroon, they have troops there because the U.S. imperialists are drudging uh, the Cameroonian, the river, because they want to uh, extract oil. So they're trying to protect their resources there. And uh, so you see that the U.S. military right now is uh, protecting the investments of the U.S. imperialists. But again, I say, what is China doing? We know what Israel is doing. It's racist. It's annihilating the Palestinian people. It's a military settler state, and it's adding to the disinformation of of the developing world. But uh, I do think that we need to pay attention to what's going on here. And I am a supporter of the diversity lottery in the United States. And maybe we made a mistake. African Americans were concerned that uh, with our uh, drop in population uh, due to a poor health and stress and a disease and other conditions that we wouldn't have a presence in the Americas and uh, in the United States of America. And so uh, the Black Congressional Caucus, uh, the same caucus that founded the, His- uh, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, supported the diversity lottery, which guarantees Africans certain privileges to come here. I've seen people come here, but they also return. They return to Senegal working on clean water, working on uh, infrastructure, you know, setting up cyber uh, cafes 25 years ago, far ahead of the U.S. But the reality is, Brother Africa, um, Africa needs to be united, and we need a stronger AU, and many countries should work as one 
because they are not able economically or politically to stand up independently against the EU, China, India, or the United States of America or Canada. There are other players out there. So we need to, uh, as you said, focus on Mother Africa, but also uh, increase our communication and understanding and help, as the uh, speaker in the previous video said, uh, let the young people, Africa is a, a young continent, many of the people are under 30, let them know that they can develop real skills there, become pharmacists, become engineers and scientists, and will have real income and real value in Africa. One thing China does not do, it generally has had a practice of not employing engineers and uh, those kind of people from Africa. They bring them from China. And there's economic incentive for Chinese uh, uh, from the Communist Party in China to Africa. Uh, so it's a complex situation, but it is about imperialism, whether it's China, India, the United States, the EU, or Great Britain. And it's about resources, Brother Africa. So we need Thank to stand united brother. and organized, as Brother Anthony always says. Brother Moses, the race for Africa, what that means to you, Brother Moses? Give me your thoughts. Yeah, well, you know, we need a united Africa and a scientific socialism and, a, you know, the uh, the imperialist forces are going to always be trying to divide and conquer. And, uh, you know, we we have to be cognizant of that. And uh, But, you know, the, 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 the agenda is still set uh, in terms of United Africa. And uh, that's the bottom line. I don't, I don't know what else to say besides that. Uh, the, no problem, Brother Moses. We thank you, and what we're going to do is take a quick revolutionary break, and when we come back, we're going to make a few announcements and have our political panelists and analysts to give us their final thoughts for the night. This is Africa on the Move. Passport Rav. Malcolm on Twitter featuring Napoleon Dumb Legend. Theorists. What if mine had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man, I wouldn't want to hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. His last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. We wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did us way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they pay me. Seem like Nip had the same old story. If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory. Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was a mystery. Supremacy will go the extent to keep their history alive. 
All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive, who be on the internet trying to divide? And use a hotel hustler, trying to be a people of that low vibe structure. Agree to disagree, and we ain't gotta tear our own down. Argue or silence, or forever be our own downfall. All I wanna say is that we're giving it away. Soul ain't for sale, and the devil is a fake. Argue with the silence, but don't let it seal our fate. Fight behind doors, but don't ever show our face. Cause come on, hats with us. Come on, hats with us. It be our own people do the trolling. Spill ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Cause some on had Twitter. And Malcolm had Twitter. It be our own people do the trolling. Spill ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Sometimes the key to life you looking for be right in front of you. Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new. I said, what if we've been lied to most of our freaking lives? Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right, your arrogance precedes you. What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic. Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry. Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me. A man lay dead in the street today. I must have hung my head and landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to spread my wings. I need to fly away. I want to get high today. Who got five on my little bundle of temporary? Man, I want to live long enough to be legendary. Your statistics said by now that I'm going to be dead and buried. But when I heard your voice, it seems as if we met already. And I march for our rights, that civil, the same purpose. Two different tribes and we fighting the same person. Could it be that our eyes was deceiving us? We had to have faith when nobody believed in us. Cosmic companionship sustained me after my husband was assassinated and gave me the strength to make my contribution to carrying forward his unfinished work. A man laid dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head. And landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to spread my wings. I need to fly away.
the truth about Africa. We start with Brother Moses. Give us your final thoughts for the night, Brother Moses. Yes. Um, um, the, the, I would like to just uh, say that Marxism teaches that the state of the government comes about due to the emergence of class society. The existence of, of the state is recognition that there are classes in the social order and that one class has to control the rights of the other classes in order to dominate society and pursue its class interests. That's basic Marxism, i.e., the state can only serve the interests of one class. There can be only one ruling class dictating its interests to the rest of the social order and thereby suppressing the interests of the other classes. In fact, the essence of the struggle reveals that there are only two classes in developed capitalism, i.e., the workers and the owners. Um, and, you know, racism is, is a strategy of the only class to divide and conquer the workers in order to maximize profit. Pigmentation of the skin is not that critical otherwise. It's a tactic used by the black owners to keep their market cordon off and exclusive to them. Is a tactic used by the Anglo owners to gain super profits above normal exploitation from the people of color by pitting white workers against non-whites, telling the Anglo that they are superior and that their interest is threatened by the interests of colored people, paying Anglo workers more crumbs from the table than the other workers receive. So, you know, we have to recognize that uh, um, that. You know, Trotskyites and petty bourgeois intellectuals love a variation on Jewish theory which says that ethnicity and culture are what makes up a nation. They focus on the characteristics of nationhood and try to make that proof that they have the right to sovereignty for their narrow nationalist interests. Israel is founded on Jewish narrow nationalism. White nationalism is no different from black nationalism in that both are ideas being perpetuated for the interests of a few and it's nothing but idealism and not dialectical historical materialism upon which Marxism and scientific socialism is based. It shows a lack of love for people with chauvinism, a.k.a. a superiority complex of the person, and in the case of denial and hatred, ultimately of people. We are just matter that thinks there's nothing sacred about skin color. We are all human and have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We need compassion, empathy, and caring for all people. And I'll leave it right there. Thank you, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. We'll now move to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, your final thoughts for tonight. 
Um, thank you um, for a great show this evening. And I want to follow up with what Brother Moses has just said. You know, we've been talking about Africa and the focus of Africa and the diaspora and uh, the African Growth and Opportunity Act, the AGOA, is an opportunity for uh, Africa and Africans to develop worker-owned businesses instead of hardcore capitalism and and the establishment of an African petty bourgeoisie. Instead, we need uh, good-paying jobs and education and basic rights for Africans to uh, worker-owned businesses. We've seen since 2000, as was discussed in the show uh, earlier this month, the AGO uh, trade with Africa go from 28 million to over 300 million um, between 2000 and uh, 2020. So now is an opportunity for Africans to create worker-owned businesses, uh, develop uh, uh, strong worker rights and policies, and for the people to seize control of the means of production rather than having the owners and bosses control the lives of the masses. So with that, Brother Africa, I just want to say thank you and thank you to uh, our audience, uh, to Brother Haki and Brother Anthony and Brother Moses. Thank you so much and have a happy Kwanzaa. And I look forward to seeing you in the new year, 2022. Good night. Tonight, Sister Eleanor, Eleanor, and we thank you as well for your contributions to today's program. We now move to Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, you find the thoughts. Yeah, Brother Africa. Uh, recently, I read an article with uh, a Dr. Barbara Walter. She's a advisor of the CIA on instability and instability leading to uh, uh, fascism or authoritarianism. It's very, very interesting. Uh, she talked about the, the political violence on January 6th insurrection and its implications. And one of the things she talks about the fact that when we talk about the military, she's very much concerned that given the, the military tend to be a very conservative institution, the mere, mere fact that they also conservative, there's a very real possibility that they're going to, if you have another situation where your elections are in dispute, that they're going to take side. And she's very much concerned about that. Now, she talks about the pre-insurgency stage, you know, uh, leading to alternism. Uh, 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 it's very, very interesting. You know, uh, she talks about the conflict in America between democracy and autocracy. But more importantly, when she talks about the pre-insurgency stage and looking at inner society, you've got to look at the level of corruption that exists in a society. In America, uh, when we talk about corruption, we talk about non-corporate responsibility, for example, in which corporations do anything they want, uh, relatively free, you know, any type of uh, any type of um, redress. You have a situation in terms of quality easing, right? Where you print up all this money, this money that goes to the rich people exclusively to the to the detriment of everybody else. So that kind of corruption breeds content. She also talked about you know political power in terms of being in the hands of, of a few. Um, you know, and for instance, when she talked about political power in terms of how it expresses itself, she talks about legalized bribery in terms of politicians. 
So politicians are actually in the hands of these very, very wealthy individuals who do things in the interest of their donors. Um, now, also, when we talk about political power, you can't dismiss this whole notion in terms of using money uh, for war but not for jobs. So clearly the message of people in society disadvantaged. And so when you talk about the potential for authoritarianism, when you talk about potential for that to happen, then you've got to understand that if someone comes along who espouses a different idea, if they thought ideally they espouse the idea that things could be better, then people tend to gravitate toward it because they, 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 they have nothing else to gravitate toward given the fact they've been used and abused so often. So clearly this is a very, very problem. Also, one of the things, so when, you, when, you, when you talk about author, author, authoritarianism, man, I'm, I'm sleepy. Now, authoritarianism, uh, this is interesting in terms of the definition of author, authoritarianism. It rejects mass participation of the people. Uh, clearly, when we talk about this voter dis, dis, disenfranchisement, and that's essentially what we're talking about. It also has the central power uh, um uh, a core which works to preserve the status quo. In the context of capitalism, it's the capitalist who determines, in terms of determines what is the status quo and actually who benefits from that status quo. And as far as the rule of law is concerned, um, there's a just, just hatred or dismissal of the rule of law uh, to the extent that law uh, should rule in land. And finally, the rejection of democratic voting, uh, which is very, very important. Because when we talk about the, the value of demo, the value of rejection of democratic voting, so we talk about voting suppression of Germanic districts to prevent choice, then essentially what you're talking about is a, a system in place to make sure that the power of the elite uh, remains in place with nothing to challenge it. Now, this is important. I'm, I'm going to close with this, Brother Africa, but this is important people understand this very fundamental point. When we talk about the fascist or authoritarianism, it's, it's important we point out some elements. There are three distinct elements of authoritarianism in which we have to understand is very, very alive and well in American society, as well as throughout the West. One is anti-intellectualism. Uh, secondly is anti-rationalism. And thirdly, anti-human. So when we think about those variables in terms of how authoritarianism actually exists, uh, that we got to understand that in the context of America, when we look at in terms of the kind of absurd kinds of claims that are being made uh, by politicians, by those positions of power, they will understand that by doing that, they create the conditions to ensure that authoritarianism actually not only thrives, but comes, in, comes into fruition. So this is a fundamental problem that we're going to find with in terms of this authoritarian strain that exists in American society. And having said that, Brother Africa, as always, I encourage people, you know, to unravel the matrix because uh, I'm telling you, uh, one of the things that, you know, uh, if, we not, if we don't understand nothing at all, I certainly hope people understand that when we talk about in terms of the authoritarian strain in American society, we got to be understanding clearly, you know, that this whole notion in terms of, uh, you know, morality has no place whatsoever in the context of the capitalist society. In that context, all is fair game. So if that means the fundamental expungement is fundamental destruction of millions and millions of people, it's not a problem as far as the ruling class is concerned. We've got some real issues before us. We have to organize. We need those institutions. We've got to start thinking about this stuff and not in the abstract, but understand that this stuff is very real and it does, and, it, and, it, and it's, it's manifesting itself every day. And so one of the things that we're very clear on, there's no escape from that. So we've we, we got to organize. 
And then I'm saying that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. And you do the same, Brother Hatchie, and we thank you also for your contributions to today's program. Next, we'll go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. Yes, uh, thanks for uh, having me, Brother Africa, and uh, allowing me to pay on tonight's program. Uh, my f- final thought for tonight is that uh, we must take control of the education of our youth. We cannot leave the education of our youth up to other people, and we've got to teach them the truth about Africa. That is the only way they'll gain a positive image of Africa, and we must work for Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. That is the ultimate solution to the problems facing African people worldwide, at home and abroad. And uh, on that note, uh, I, I, I wish you, uh, the listening audience, and the fellow panelists a good night. And we good night to you, Brother Anthony, and we thank you for your contribution as well for today's program. To our listening audience, we would like to just share with you quickly a couple of announcements. We would like to remind you that you, if you haven't purchased your book, so please do so by going to Pan African Roots. They published a two-volume book, one and two, titled We Demand the Full Disclosure and the Dismization of All Slavery Era Records. The author is Bob Brown. For more information, please visit this website, which is www.a-aprp-gc.org. And we call it back, www.a-aprp-gc.org. Please check that book out. Make it become a part of your library. The next announcement is that we want to remind you to join us along with African Awareness Association as they take their annual Black History Educational and Culture Tour to Cuba from July 23rd to the 31st, leaving from Cancun, Mexico. For more information, you can visit our website, which is www.aaa.cubatour.com. Or you can email them at African Awareness Association. All spelled together, the number two at Gmail. Come and join us. And for the nice program, we'd like to thank you for allowing us the opportunity to come to your homes where we could speak truth to the powerless and the powerful, but more importantly, to try to share information with you. So you can take this information and use it as a tool for liberation, to help liberate Africa, and African people throughout the world and to help make your proper contribution to advancing humanity. So remember, Africa on the Move is a community project of the African Women's Association. You can listen to it every Sunday evening starting at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. So come and join us, spread the word. Until next time, let's remember, Pan-Africanism is the key. It will set all African free. Let's continue to go forward, Apple. Novel, and we'll leave you with some music or inspiration. This has been 
Africa on the moon. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Her freedom, Palestine, Palestine needs our
With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.